flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, skags. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, but every time we love and it feels just like this, it feels just like this, it feels I wish I had a time machine, wish I had a better rhyming speed, wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean, I wish that I could spread my wings, I wish that I had seven limbs, yeah. that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish that every time we move in, it feels just like, like this. Feels just like Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I'm your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and we've had a really rockin' episode today with Roger Waters of Pink Floyd fame, but who has also been lighting up mainstream media that is... Uh, Silly enough to let him on. I say silly enough because they obviously work overtime to keep the kind of politics um, that he espouses off the screen. But he's been able to use his platform as a rock star to engage in some pretty spirited debates lately on CNN and the like. And it was such a pleasure and an honor to host him on Bad Faith Pod. Uh, I know lots of you have a lot to say about this episode, so I won't delay. Let's just get right into it. Brent, you're up first. What's on your mind this evening? Hi, Brianna. Hey, Brent. How are you? Good, good. So um, I'm going to speak on something that's been on my mind since I went to um, the Kamala Harris rally in um, California uh, last week. So um, Hmm. she gave gave a a prep rally to get people to vote. Mm-hmm. And I, what I noticed was she brought up abortion and like black Supreme Court justices, like the most recent one that was uh, appointed by Biden. And then she mentioned third girl Marshall. And it seemed to me that and she and she blamed abortion, the um, the uh, the white ring uh, religious zealots or whatever she called them for the Roe v. Wade being um, basically abolished. Mm mm-hmm. And um, I screamed at her that, um, or I don't know if that's the right word. I shouted at her that um, Obama could have codified 
Roe v. Wade and a buy-in as well. And I thought I would get some kind of crowd support because a lot of these people seem to be um, passionate about uh, abortion rights. And um, Obama and Biden could have codified Roe v. Wade before it got to, uh, it became an issue with the Supreme Court. And what happened was people started shouting at me and this one lady uh, told me to get out. And she escorted me out of the rally. And um, it seems to me that uh, people are focused too much on identity politics and not on the issues. Because if, if the people in the room were focused on the issues, they would know that uh, Roe Way could have been codified by Obama. But it seems like they were focused on the personality of Kamala Harris. And um, they were focused on supporting a black person. I don't, I apologize if that's, I don't want to sound racist, but I don't know if, if, if that's racist to you to say that people support other candidates because of their race, not because of the actual issues. So I have probably two questions. Um, is it racist to say that um, people don't focus on the issue? Too many people don't focus on the actual issues when they vote, but they vote on identity, whether it's race or the like. And my other question is, um, do people, should, should people, uh, be focusing more on what happened in the past with Obama and Biden and holding them accountable for not codifying Roe v. Wade? Thank you. Sure. Well, first, I think that although I think it is true that there are people who have been systematically, systematically kind of hoodwinked. Uh, by the Democratic uh, Party. I'm just going to put you on mute because I'm hearing a little bit of uh, feedback. Um, <clears throat> into thinking that sometimes identity can be a stand-in for substantive politics. And I think that there's reasons why that was so effective. I think for a long time there were so few people of any identity background other than straight white man that – there, it was a it was a reasonable gamble. It wasn't quite so proven that identity politics weren't going to deliver substantive benefits for the communities from which those people came. But I think it is definitely true that that continues to be a way to obscure the lack of progressivism from any given candidate, and that was the case with uh, Kamala Harris. I don't know, however, that I think that's the primary kind of identity that's obscuring people from being – um, sufficiently critical of the Democratic Party's failure to codify Roe. I think that the identity that's important there is simply Democrat. And that whether it's uh, Kamala Harris or Joe Biden or any other figurehead in the party, I mean, there have been a number of protests over the past couple of weeks, some about Ukraine, you protested um, about their failure to codify Roe. And all of them have basically received boos and hisses from the crowds of people who are supporters of the Democratic Party and supporters of these figures, regardless of their own races or whether or not they like them because of a, a certain kind of racial or gender or sexuality or anything like that, any kind of um, identity. So I think the issue here is that it's partisan politics and most people are really uncomfortable being critical of their own. And, you know, we saw that <clears> – <throat> You know, in the last couple of days, as people have been vocally disappointed by the uh, Eighth Circuit's uh, ruling with respect to this um, student debt cancellation 
and a number of us who have been warning of this possibility for a long time simply saying, hey, you wouldn't be surprised if you <clears throat> listened to this content or heeded our warnings or, you know, like, and, and there's a potential implication that Biden did this intentionally. You know, I can't, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know what's in Biden's mind, but the options seem to be he did it intentionally or he's stupid. Neither looks very good for him and his administration. And there have been a wave of people saying, absolutely not. You're a hater. You're a da 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 So I think that there's just a defensive instinct from a lot of people who aren't used to any narrative other than Democrats good, Republicans bad. And there's this implication that if you're saying Democrats bad, it must mean that you think Republicans good. And we're just basically caught up in this partisan minefield. And that seems to be what was happening to you. I mean, what do you make of that? Oh, where'd you go? Sorry, I didn't mean to demote you. I was just muting you because I think you have me on um, speaker, which was giving some feedback. What do you think about that, Brent? Are you still with us, Brent? Can you unmute yourself? Yeah. Can you hear me now? I can. Okay, so what I think is, yeah, I think people are too focused on even more than that, like not just Democrat or Republican, but kind of, I think race plays a, a factor as well. Like it's no accident that Kamala brought up the first black justice Third world marshal. I mean, it's no, she's playing to a certain, uh, crowd. And, um, I, I hate bringing up race because I think we should focus on the issues. But what I witnessed was people saw me, uh, criticizing a Democrat woman minority. And I'm a minority myself. And it, it was really scary how people were treating me. It, it was like a mob. It was a mob, basically. It was basically like one of those rallies where everyone will support who's ever up there, no matter what they do. And I think it's a, it's the Democrats have painted an image of them being the good guys versus Trump being bad. And um, it, it's, it's convinced me that the progressive movement won't really go anywhere until... Um, I don't know until people wake up or the progressive ideas become more, get more exposure. And um, that's why I feel the, I don't know if you're aware, but Jamie Dore had an issue with TYT and they had some kind of drama. And I feel that's very destructive because progressive media should be working together to push their ideas, not resorting to um, cheap Me Too tactics to discredit jimmy door and so i think partisan politics is definitely in play and people do vote based on oh i want to support a black woman or i want to support a a gay man or something like that so so let me ask you this knowing that people feel and i think for legitimate reasons defensive of candidates from various identity groups that have historically not had access to halls of power or politics, either because until relatively recently in this country, we had uh, de jure segregation. Um, you know, it was just, I think the anniversary either today or yesterday of Ruby Bridges integrating um, her elementary school, you know, for whatever reason, because of rampant homophobia that only has 
petered off very recently in the last 10 years or so in this kind of post will and grace period, you know, uh, whatever the, whatever the reason per various groups involved, I think that there is some legitimate sensitivity around some of these issues as much as I've been critical of identity politics. I want to put the question back to you, knowing that sort of thing exists. How do you think that we should talk about these issues without making people feel alienated or validating validating their belief belief. that we are targeting people because of their identity? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, It just has to be focused on the, like we just have to focus on the issues. Like um, it's just my, I'm just speaking from my experience at the rally. I mean, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's just kind of we just have to focus on the issues and not focus so much on whether it's um, whatever race or uh, gender. Uh, it should be basically on the about the issues. And um, I do understand the realities of our history and um, and with civil rights and stuff. And I, we do have to be sensitive to that. But um, I just feel that. Identity politics is really um, obscuring, um, passing things that would benefit uh, people of all races and genders, like Medicare for all and fifteen dollars minimum wage. I feel like those things should be the focus. But so, at, but do I, yeah, yeah, I do realities of of um, race in our country. So uh, my recommendation. My would recommendation be, would. Be, can you put me on mute? Um, or put yourself um, on mute or put yourself so, so I don't hear the feedback. Thank you. Thank I you. Think, I think, oh, I'll, I'll just do it. Um, the reality, I, my recommendation would be that for many people, the issues are inclusive of race. The issues include their gender identity. The issues include things that might not be the top priority of any given political campaign. And even though, of course, it's true that every political project has to make priorities, and if it's going to be a populist project, it has to choose issue areas that have a broad tent. We can't, I I would suggest not using language like we have to focus on the issues as though, because it implicitly um, seems to put down deprioritize, delegitimize concerns that are very legitimate, even if they wouldn't even rank among the top issues for a black person or a gay person or Latino or et cetera. Right. So I guess what my pushback here is more linguistic perhaps than substantive, but I do think that we have to be cognizant of the optics of some of the things that we do. So if it means organizing with black people, when you protest a black candidate or Latinos, when you protest a Latino candidate, so that kind of, pushback isn't as easy. Um, Maybe that is something that needs to be done. Whether or not the things that we say when we protest appeal to that kind of shared identity and and saying things like, black women depend on you protecting this right. Why didn't Barack Obama codify it? You know, really make grandfathering in, make centering the people who are most likely to be offended by the grievances that we raise is one idea. But I, I generally think that we have to be very careful about how we talk about these things because it's not just that there is one real issue and other fake issues. We wouldn't like that if 
we were talking about the disability community and saying, well, Medicare for, you know, Medicare was a bad example, but let me, let me, let, you know, we have to legalize marijuana. That is the issue. You know, we, you know, we got to bring X, Y, and Z down. That is the issue. People have a lot of things that they're dealing with and you just, you just want to phrase it in a way that is inclusive. And also it's not entirely clear to me. I think that's perfectly legitimate for Kamala Harris to talk about historical black Supreme court justices and the like. I don't think that we should pretend like those things are mutually exclusive. The problem isn't that she's bringing up Thurgood Marshall. The problem is if she's bringing up Thurgood Marshall in a way to distract from the fact that she isn't doing something substantive for the community that Thurgood Marshall was fighting very hard to protect. And so I think we need to keep the hits clean and not come off. And and I know that you don't mean it this way, but be careful not to come off as just vaguely irritated by people talking about identity because that's, that's, that's not going to help us get very far. Oh, sorry. I kicked you out again. Um, what do you make of that, Brent? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like I worded it very, like, I'm not very, I should have been worded more careful. Like you are absolutely right. Like, um, those things, they do like race. It it doesn't matter. Especially in the United States, those things absolutely do matter. But the, the problem with Kamala Harris and these other politicians is, they use it to the point where they don't address those issues, like the other issues. That's my main concern. And I, and I do apologize for not, for, for seeming to be, um, dismissive of identity because that is important in a very diverse society that we live in. But it doesn't seem like, uh, Kamala Harris, Obama, Biden, they even care about addressing the issues. Look what they did with student debt. Like, he, I think he, what Biden did was intentional, and he should be called out for out for it. But c- instead, he'll con- they'll continue to play identity politics by saying that he hi- he had the first black Supreme Court justice when he, when when he lists his accomplishments. And, and I don't want again, I don't want to s- dismiss that, but he's going to use that while not addressing issues like student debt and him failing to codify Roe v. Wade. That was the point I was trying to make. Mm-hmm. But, Identity is important, but it's being used by our politicians to not address other important issues as well. That was the point I was trying to make. And I do apologize if I came off as uh, not sensitive to that. Oh, no, not, not, not at all. No. It's something that we all have to kind of be careful of and guard against. And I, I listen to myself back. And I, I appreciate you calling in. It was such a thoughtful question. And thank you for having the courage to go and protest the way you did. I did see some coverage of that. I was trying to pull up a clip while you were talking and wasn't able to find one. But um, kudos to you, and I hope you. I can send you the clip. I could send you the clip of what I, I I taped if you if you're interested. Sure, sure. Why don't you drop if you can drop the link in the chat? I think that would be really helpful. Okay. Um. Let me. I don't know how. To... You go ahead. Go ahead and figure it out, Brent. And I'm going to move on. But I appreciate you calling in, and everyone keep your eye on the chat so you can find find the link if you haven't seen it already. Thank you, Brent. Thank you for calling in. Keep the faith. All right, Sylvester, long time no chat. What's been on your mind? Hello? Howdy. Well, in a blow to identity, politics are ambiguously black sore in uh, Arizona. Miss Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first of all, have you been seeing what I'm saying? Like, No, I see you, it. Okay. 
when SNL did the skit about her on Saturday, they had um, what's her face? Oh God, what's her name playing her? Did you watch the skit? I didn't see it, but I'm gonna guess it's that light skinned black girl, huh? No, no, no. They had I mean they had a white woman playing her. Oh, I they forget did. her name. Oh. I really like her. She's like brunette. And she looked like her. But like what was striking to me is that even her she her dress up as Carrie Lake read as black to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just, we can't get it. I'm gonna look I'ma look it I'ma look it up. Um I think we just can't get that out of our heads now. Yeah, Cicely um, Strong. Cicely Strong. Look, it, all I'm saying is Google a picture of Carrie Lake with her family, like her siblings and parents. Then Google a picture of Carrie Lake with her immediate family, her husband and kids. And you tell me what your impressions are. I'm with you. No, no, I'm with, I'll, I'll look, I'll look it up, but I'm already, I'm already there. I'm 10 toes down with you. Uh, she's a, she's an AKA. You know, she's just been keeping it on the low for the GOP base. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe she might have turned out a couple more black folks and she would have embraced it a little bit more, a little less ambitious, you know? If, I believe that her husband is white and, you know, her very cute teenage kids seem to me to be ethnic, but who am I to say? Who, who am I to say? Her kids seem to be telling on her a little bit, <laughs> but that's none of my business. All I'm saying is, you know, I think I, I think you're right. I think it would help her electorally if she would embrace her roots. <laughs> but hey, too late, too late, too late for that now. Um, so apart from my um, conspiracy theory about Carrie Lake's uh, secret black <laughs> past, um, what's on your mind tonight? Oh, well, you know, Sister Brianna, you just keep on outdoing yourself with these interviews. Uh, uh, I mean, my, my thing is now that we've had Mr. Pink Floyd, Roger Waters, yeah, okay, mm -hmm. Mr. Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. a.k.a. Roger Waters, uh, now that we've had this man on, when can we get Ja Rule on? I'm wondering what Ja Rule is thinking at a time <laughs> like this. I need representation. I don't feel like we, the, the rap community is really being seen. The way, the way, I'm just I'm just saying if we're talking about identity politics, where's Ja? Um for people who don't get the reference, uh here it is. Yeah, man, they would. But I'm like, for real, why why you care so much what the Dixie chicks say? It's not like they political scientists and nothing. They just bitches they can sing good. You know what I mean? Stop worshiping celebrities so much. Just don't listen, pay attention. I remember right around September 11th, uh, Ja Rule was on MTV. That's what they said. They said, we got Ja Rule on the phone. Let's see what Ja's thoughts are on this tragedy. Who gives a fuck what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this? Like, this is ridiculous. I don't want to dance. I'm scared to death. I want some answers that Ja Rule might not have right now. Thing when bad shit happens to me, I'll be in the crib like, oh my God, this is terrible. Because somebody, please, find Ja Rule, get hold of this motherfucker so I can make sense of all this. Where is Ja? Have me, Ja Rule. All right, so like fitting reference, Sylvester, given that Dave Chappelle was the guest host of the very SNL episode you were just referencing. Yeah, and I, cause, I mean, because I seen the episode Sunday night come, and I seen Roger Waters. I'm like, why is Bree assuming that I'm just thinking, where's Roger? <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? I, I was, I was, I was 
No, he did good. No, he did it. I love Roger White, by the way. I'm joking. Well, no, look, I I was struggling with this a little bit as I was preparing to interview him because I obviously, like I said in the episode, I listened to a bunch of his recent interviews and I clearly understand why he's been doing the circuit. And I appreciate the value of him using his platform to say things on like CNN that don't get said on CNN. But obviously in the left media space, there are plenty of folks who are happy to come on and say that sort of a thing that have all kinds of, you know, expertise. And so I was wrestling with myself a little bit about the, what to get out of the interview, what to ask him, you know, what the, what the point of it was, especially since I'm not, you know, a big music person and not someone who, you know, has, has been like a, a fan of Pink Floyd in any kind of meaningful way. Um, so I don't know. What did, what did you think of it all? Yeah, no, I couldn't name a Pink Floyd song if you asked me to, if you put a gun to my head. <laughs> but you yeah. would know him if you heard him. Oh, you know what? Okay, maybe they one of those bands that like you. Yeah, okay. They was like you know Surfing USA. Like I don't know who made Surfing USA, um, but like the, I know this. Like the Beach Boys. Oh, the Beach Boys. <laughs> See, but it's one of those. But you, when you hear it, you know it, right? When you hear it, you know it. I I just don't know if I can say the same for Pink Floyd, but you know maybe if something like that comes on, then I'll I'll know where it comes from. But uh, you know, but something that did come to my head when I was listening to uh roger was um where are the black and again i know what malcolm says about oh you know the black community we're the only community that looks to the entertainers and the athletes you know for our spokespeople but where are the black athletes or black artists that are speaking the way that Roger is speaking because he was hitting on every point. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and the thing is, I feel like the most that we'll get out of our athletes are the co-sponsored NBA, NFL, get out to vote, the backpack giveaway, just all of the around the corner edges thing and nothing that really addresses the, the issue. root cause. Well, you know what um, Kanye would say? <laughs> Sorry, too soon. You know, he would say that people are, you know, black celebrities don't have enough no, power no. <laughs> and that they're scared and that, you know, they won't. They, I mean, everyone's scared. It's not just black celebrities. You've heard Susan Sarandon. I said this to, 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 to Roger. Susan Sarandon talked about how she gave that speech. I forget what she was protesting um, at the Oscars. And that got her like pseudo banned from a bunch of Hollywood projects for a long time that she's basically persona non grata at like Vanity Fair. You know, the, there are consequences. Look, the Dixie Chicks, you know, they, they suffer the consequences. Um, what's your name? Sinead O'Connor suffered the consequences. There was actually, I talked about this on Rising last week. There was this interesting interview that MIA did with Candace Owens. Oh, yeah. And MIA, it's so weird because I don't, I don't really understand why of all people she was talking to Candace Owens about it. A lot of what she was saying <laughs> was like legitimate, even though she went off the rails here and there. But she was saying, you know, you're allowed as a celebrity. Candace Owens' hobby horse is why do we listen to celebrities? Why do we care what Ja Rule thinks? Like that's basically Candace Owens' um, approach. And conservatives say stuff like that because they're mad because all of the celebrities basically are liberal, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, they have a vested interest. Except in for Chris Pratt. <laughs> Except for Chris Pratt and Mel Gibson and like a handful of others. Uh, right. the, the mom from... Um, Malcolm and uh, not Malcolm in the middle. Um, the other one that's like Malcolm in the middle, but not not good. Yo, even uh, Homegirl from Full Houses. Um, uh, not the progressive one. There's a progressive one. Um, and then Homeboy's daughter, his daughter. She's like super MAGA too. 
You remember Full House? Yeah. So the, the oldest daughter is like Candace something. And then there's the middle one, Stephanie, who had a little the, bit of an addiction problem the, that I'm here is doing well now. It's the oldest one. The oldest Candace, one. Candace Bush Burn, Candace something. Yeah, anyway, the, the, the point is Point that, is, point is, yeah. Um, there are, so that's Candace's bag. So she was happy to talk to MIA, who had a slightly different grievance, but overlapping with Candace. MIA's grievance is that she feels like she was punished for having a certain kind of politics and speaking out against issues related to Tamils and, and more things that are, I think, frankly, more progressive in nature. But our kind of geopolitically significant, she was talking about how she wouldn't be allowed to talk about Syria um, in the way that Beyonce was able to do her Black Panther performance at the Super Bowl in 2016 or whatever that was. Mm-hmm. So, and she attributed it to the fact that Beyonce is black. And then I'm like, okay, well, no. The difference is that Beyonce was also not talking about Syria. Like, no right. one's allowed to talk about <laughs> Syria. It has nothing to do with it being black. So I do think that MIA's point is, is valid, that there, there are certain things that celebrities are allowed to talk about and there are certain things that are not allowed to talk about. And it appears to be like liberals can say what they want because the kind of category of acceptable discourse leans left, like leans liberal. But it completely excludes a whole host of meaningful issues that the left would take on. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah, no, no. I'm with that. Yeah. no. Because that, that... you get punished for it. I mean, there there are real consequences that, that, to... There, there... There yeah, are, there are, but then I think now that these players have so much, so like so much, like fu money, like these contracts are like crazy mm-hmm. now. So like, there's a certain level of even if you try to reprimand me in any, like I've already made it now. It's not like I'm living paycheck to paycheck with my millions. They're getting like half a billion dollar contracts now, you know. Well, so I would I mean, think look- that would give them a little bit more you know, gravity and space to... So that's what Kanye thought. What did Kanye say? <laughs> Kanye said, and this is not a defense of Kanye, by the way. This is just yeah, talking I mean, about the power structure. He's talking that, okay. about, like, how it affects him individually. He's not really talking about what black people are going through. He's just talking about how he's being affected. Right, because he, he's, you know, narcissistic. But right. what he was saying was, first, before he got all his contracts canceled, he said, I'm so big, Adidas can't cancel me. I'm saying what I want to say. Like, Adidas mm-hmm. can't take the contract away. Cut to Adidas taking the contract away, and his tone changed with a quickness, right? Mm-hmm. But he, he was kind of speaking in that way because he did think he had fuck you money. And he did think that he was so popular that he could weather those kinds of storms no matter what he said. And he made a miscalculation. So mm-hmm. I do think that some people, and Roger alluded to this in the episode, he said, I've made a small fortune in, as a rock star, and so I'm able to do this. And I think that's going on with Susan Sarandon, too. Like, she has had a very long and successful career, and she's made a calculation that it's maybe okay mm-hmm. for her not to get any more Vogue covers or whatever to stand by her principle, and God bless her for it. But most people, either because they have golden handcuffs and they've invested in these extremely expensive houses and with extremely expensive upkeep or because they love their jobs and they love to act and they love their craft and they don't want to get blackballed. They ultimately aren't willing to risk it all. Most people aren't actually right. willing to risk it all. And few huh? people are so legitimately independent that they can take those kinds of risks. Even LeBron James had to bend the knee to Barack Obama. <laughs> I know he's so close. I just, I just need the right person to get around him. He's so close. He's so close. Um, so they'll never let us near him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> during, during the Bernie campaign, I was like, 
it was it was delicate because there were so many people who were like trying to get close to celebrities just to be close to celebrities that right. I didn't really want to make the ask, but I did feel like there were people that we should have been working on for a longer term political project. People who are influencers yeah. like um, Tracy Ellis Ross. Everyone loves Tracy Ellis Ross, right? Like, but she's got to be out there clowning for Hillary or the next Hillary or the Hillary after that until Probably, she dies. Yeah. The Kerry right. Washingtons, like the I John know. Legends. These people, it's like, do they not know? Are they so ignorant? Like, can no one, like, just tap them and have just a conversation? I just want to have a conversation. Right. Cardi B. I, I would have loved to talk to Cardi B about not endorsing Joe Biden. Mm. I think she, she probably put out something like that. I wouldn't be surprised. She'd be. No, know, no, no. She, she fell in line. They got to oh. her. And, and I think she had some regrets, oh. to be honest, because she's a smart cookie. But they yeah, got in her ear. I bet Bernie got in her ear and was like, "We got to do this for the good of the country." And uh, she fell in line and yeah. she endorsed. Remember, they had that little pat, they had that little uh, chit chat, that little tentative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's Not what they do. That's how they get them. They get them they all in line. Them. And they don't have like a balance to like fact check everything. Mm. And then Ice Cube. Do. Look what happened to Ice Cube. Uh, don't even get me started on Ice Cube. They're, they're still mad about Ice Cube. <laughs> they're still acting like Ice right. Cube. People, they're straight up. Um, you know, Ukrainian soldiers giving the Heil Hitler on CNN and people have the audacity to still be talking about what Ice Cube said two years ago. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> like, this is this is what happens when you step out of line. Yeah, no, um, that that's true. Um, I definitely I want to I don't want to step here too long because I want other folks to go. Up. So there was one one last thing that I wanted to um, bring up because I think there was a point of contention. And I think that you were playing devil's advocate in this situation. But then it was like um, about. Uh, you know, American being the world's policeman and, well, what if that Hitler is out there? Like, what's our responsibility? You know, what's our role? And then he, he, you know, I know Roger pushed back on it, but is there a case? And I don't, I'm personally one of those people that I don't get into calling these people Nazis and things like that because I just, I don't personally, I don't really see how productive it is. Um, But then is there a case to be made that America is or has been and continues to be a Hitler to the rest of the world. I mean, I know. hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay. A hundred percent. At some point I was listening to somebody and they brought up Vietnam as a exa- an example of anyway, like I look a hundred percent. And if okay. there's if there were a bunch of other countries sitting around having a conversation about how to stop the United States of America, I would fully endorse it. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, but like okay. I, I I was playing devil's advocate, but I'm also I'm also uh, I, I'm not quite as um, isolationist dismissive at, oh. of this 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 counterfactual about the next Hitler, as some people are. Because here's the thing. I fully understand and agree that it is brought up in bad faith to argue for the continued role of at for America to be America's policeman. And I think uh-huh. structurally and philosophically, we should not be in that position that we've created that reality by doing things like having proxy wars against Russia and preventing there being a, a multipolar state where other mm-hmm. countries have as much power and as much, you know, mi- military strength and as much influence in the world as we do so that there could be a kind of a shared responsibility. All of that is true. Mm-hmm. At the same time, people are going to bring that up. And even people who are not bringing it up in bad faith, who are like who who lived through World War II, 
who are Jewish, who have experienced these kind of genocides, who perhaps look to the Rwanda example or any a number of other examples of genocides that America stayed out of and said, actually, that was bad. Actually, maybe they could have prevented millions of people from getting killed and have mixed feelings about it. And I understand that the point that someone made, I think maybe on the Aaron and Marco Bronco episode about how, you know, those events might not have happened, but for America. And I think that's, that's, that's obviously true. I I still, I have a little bit of trouble being, having, leaving it there. I think in a specific mm-hmm. instance, it's a good argument about not intervening, not intervening in Haiti, not intervening, da, 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 not intervening right. in Ukraine. I think that's a good argument for that. But there still is this, I mean, there is still this, this World War II example that looms large where it wasn't our fault and something truly horrific was happening. And we had a power to get involved and stop it. And we choose not to. And ultimately didn't choose to get involved for any kind of humanitarian reason at all. Right. And I'm just so, curious if, if the answer is let let six million Jews get exterminated and we're not going to get in it. Like live with that answer, but no one is quite <laughs> willing to say that. And to me, that suggests that I'm not the only one who has this hesitation. That's all I'm saying. I'm not. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't know how to feel. I'm just trying to give voice to this like hesitation in my chest. No, and I hear that. And that'll be a nuanced conversation. Thank you. You know, always for the time. Uh, if there's a candidate. Um, interview recommendation I would make, which is not aside from jaw rule. I still want that to happen. <laughs> um, Kenneth Mejia. I mean, yes. when I say that, bro- that brother probably, I, I personally would say that that brother might've ran the best leftist campaign that this ever, ever with what, with, with what he's doing with this controller race and educating folks about a position nobody even knew about. And now he got the most votes out of, you know, more than the mayor, you know? So I put that recommendation out and then I'll bow out with that one. Thank you. I'm DMing him right now. I messaged him shortly before the election. Um, yeah, he's I probably a busy he guy. Very now, busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to stay that um, way. It's going to stay that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I will follow up because I would love to talk to him um, and their Gen Z friend from Florida. But thanks I'll for send, calling I'll him. send a message to him. Okay, perfect. Right. Thank you, Sylvester. All right. Keep the faith. Andrew, what is on your mind this evening? Hey, Bree, how's it going? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I got a new kitten who's like two and a half months old, so I got scratches all over my arms, but fun times. Cats, let me um, tell you, I, I love all animals. <laughs> except for cats. I am low-key afraid of cats in a way that I just don't feel oh, about no. dogs, and it's because of this. It's because cats have too many um, sharp bits. <laughs> and I find them very difficult to handle. Yeah, I have this like um, crocheted bracelet my wife made for me, and my cat was playing with it the other day, and I was like, "This is fine. I don't care about the claws." But when she bit around the knot that ties it on, her teeth—I swear they were like hypodermic needles that got too Oof. big, and it was like, "Ooh, ow!" So I, I feel you there, but I am. I don't know. I think I like cats and dogs equally, and people don't like that answer for me. They want me to be either or, and they feel that it that whether you're a cat or a dog person belies a lot more about your person personality. But maybe it does, and I'm just fucking indecisive. It's not left know. right. <laughs> it's not cat dog. It's top down. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, I'm going to say that next time somebody asks me. <laughs> um, I got a couple of thoughts. I'll just keep it short. Um, I, as a kid, got a, and this is going to show how young I am, I got an iTunes card, like a gift card for my, like, seventh birthday or eighth birthday or something. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around there. And so the first music I ever purchased that was not already my parents' music was um, some Pink Floyd. And I don't remember the other one, but it was mostly Pink Floyd. And I I definitely think that um, Roger's lyrics have a big impact if you listen to them, mm. especially at a young age. And then I was also a strange kid. So it may, might not be connected, but by the time I was like 10 or 11, I was interested in like war and not mm-hmm. just because there are games about war, but I was like reading uh, a lot of Wikipedia pages, I remember. And I, I've been reflecting recently, wondering if that was in large part because of um, music. I mean, I was also listening to like um, Stevie Wonder was like a big thing. And there's that one song, Frontline, that's, you know, that one. A Stevie um, song called Frontline? Yeah, it's about a Vietnam veteran. That now that he, I know I that. kind of sort of makes up. It's, on, it's not on like his classic. The thing album. that's different. Oh. I'm sorry, did you hear that? <laughs> that's okay, yeah. That's so weird. <laughs> I, I have the more. computer thing muted. I have it huh. muted, but for some reason it just was playing so sorry. I was trying to pull up the Stevie Wonder song. It's really good. It's on the Musiquarium compilation, so it's not on like a. It didn't come out on like a regular album. It came out on. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, it came out with like a. That one also has "Ribbon in the Sky," "Do I Do." Um, so there's some other like more well-known ones that came out there. Huh. But yeah, I just, interesting. Um, I'm I'm happy that Roger is still around. He came on tour to Mexico city a bit ago, which is not far from me, but I had like $4 in my bank account. So I was like, shit, I can't go. So I Mm. hope he, I really just, I don't, I don't want to say this as any type of omen or, or, um, jinx. So I'm going to knock on some wood, but you know, he's old. I want him to come back so I can see him, (laughs) but I'm, I'm glad you did the episode with him. And I, I just always appreciate. And I think maybe part of the re part of the reason that, um, you know, there's not like a Muhammad Ali right now, as far as mm-hmm. like, where's the, where's the sort of like black celebrity? I mean, we have Justin Jackson. I think maybe we shouldn't sleep on Justin Jackson, but yeah. he, he doesn't have the fame of, of a Kanye or Kyrie. He's well known, but not that same level of like super duper star. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a big part of it is like, look at how ready i mean part part of it in the sports industries is how the money is actually made for the athletes they're getting a trickle which is still a ton of money but they're getting a trickle of the ungodly profits of this industry and then the way they make that sustainable past their pretty short career is to pursue endorsements and you look how ready um, nike is to virtue signal about anti-semitism um, and while they're continuing to hush people talking about sweatshops, um, it's, it's like, I think it is more precarious if you're a black public figure, people are going to police your speech more readily as we have seen just now, uh, another example with you and with savvy and others, but that's, I think yeah, that I think, plays I think into that it is, more. 
I, I really do think that's right. Like you referenced Muhammad Ali, they put his ass in jail. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, this is not incidental. And I do think, look, I can't prove anything, and I don't want to sound paranoid, but it does seem to me that there is a, a special investment in not allowing diverse voices to be critical of the establishment because of what the first caller brought up that, you know, that the defense of that invokes identity politics isn't so useful against a Cornell West. And we saw what happened to him. You know, yeah. I remember there was this moment where Eddie Gloud said the tiniest little thing back in 2016 about how people in solidly red or solidly blue states should consider voting third party. And they gave him the smackdown and he's never said anything you know, he, he fell in line. And I have a lot of respect for Eddie Gott. I'm not saying this in a judgmental way because people have livelihoods and I get it. But, yeah. you know, there was a clear tone shift. They snatched Melissa Harris Perry right off the air and she was hardly being like some uber radical. You know, yeah. everybody gets put in their place. And I think in particular, and I, I, this is my same argument for why so many black mayors have basically betrayed their communities. I don't think it's because black people have less integrity. I think it's because black people have less money <laughs> and they're more yeah. beholden to like being bought off. I mean, they're more susceptible to being bought off because they have fewer resources. So they're more likely to sign up for the Bloomberg school where they get a million dollars or whatever, and then fall in line. Whereas if you were independently wealthy, you don't have to go that route. You can finance your own campaigns. You know, it, I, it I agree with that heavily. Yeah, I think also one more example I'll give of that is um, I'm sure it has been possible for the NSA and the CIA or some other private contractors to get together and just kill Edward Snowden at some point over the last, what, eight years or nine years now. There must have been some opportunity, um, but one of the few Americans killed in a, um, you know, a U.S. strike was, I can't remember his last name. I think his name was Omar. And he was um, like a sort of, uh, I think he was a, Sh a Shia Islamic figure of some significant renown. And he had American citizenship. He had lived here for a while. And I think he was drone struck under Obama in like Qatar or Yemen or somewhere where it's not even exactly a, on, you know what you would think of as a u.s war going on um so yeah it's like it, it is more dangerous to have um somebody who like you can't use the anti-semitism charge against against bernie so they'll have to come up with something else that gets a little more difficult right you can't use the uh the racist charge katie. against cornell or katie, i think yeah, that's part katie of why katie was so much more of a threat on the yeah. hill versus me that's true yeah. It, it, well, it is, it is. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go. I, I was going to kind of change. I was gonna say, go it does. It does feel like when I see the volume, like I was, I'm not like I'm completely like numb to it now. They really they fucked around and like, you know, you know, uh, trolled me too many times. And now I have the thickest skin in the world. But I was a little surprised by how many people reacted, like how many like real blue checks, not the newly minted ones, but like how many journalists and established people weighed in on what I thought was a pretty innocuous tweet for me about how, like, I didn't even say like Joe Biden definitely rigged this to fail. I said like, this is, this looks bad and you'll have to, it's going to be a hard job convincing me that this isn't what Biden did intentionally. Right. And mm -hmm. like, 
like all of these people came out of the woodwork in a way that again felt kind of coordinated to dunk on this tweet and i said to myself oh the notion of me pointing this out must be very powerful <laughs> like they must really really mm-hmm. not like this narrative so i'm gonna keep saying it um because you know i i don't know a lot of things i'm nobody's ukraine expert but this is my wheelhouse and if i'm wrong it's because all of these experts at the at um, debt strike, the debt collective are wrong. All of these legal experts I've been talking to are wrong. It's not because I'm just wrong. So if we're all wrong together, mm-hmm. fine, we're all wrong together. But I'm pretty confident about this this one. And you know the the coordinatedness of it to me does suggest like and the, and the vitriol that has regularly come at me at various stages in this process from when I said I, you know, all due respect to Bernie, but I don't endorse Joe Biden at this time. Like the the disproportionate blowback to me does suggest that there is something particularly threatening about me as a as an interlocutor i agree and, and i think that has um, that has something to do with race it definitely does like there there's definitely um there's definitely a bigger worry about somebody who's immune to whatever branch of identity politics sticking uh you know a twig in in the eye of the establishment or a larger stick it's not um it's not something that can be quieted as easily and um but as for the other part you said about there being a coordinated response i mean certainly we've talked recently on multiple shows about nafo um being a accepted bot Mm -hmm. or troll farm um you know the ukrainian troll farm a-okay the potentially existing existing Russian troll farms, not okay. Uh, K-Hive mm-hmm. being mostly bots, totally fine. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll weaponize this claim against other people who don't tow our narrative. And you can go all the way back to, um, even if they are not bots and they're real-ass journalists, you can go back to John Stockwell was a former CIA agent who I think, I think left the CIA in the 70s. And his job was in Angola and other parts of Southern Africa to manufacture fake stories about the atrocities of Cuban troops who were fighting apartheid mm. South African military units and training people like the ANC um, or the militarized sort of factions around the ANC. And he said, yeah, none of this shit was true, but we had it you know, throughout the CIA's um, reach we had enough journalists who trusted us not that they were necessarily willing um tools and they knew exactly what they were doing but they had been fed enough um you know wheat with the chaff that we could insert whatever we wanted into a newspaper in nigeria have that reprinted in france and then bring that into the united states and so you know there could be a lot of people like joe you know i'm sure they travel in similar social circles they get um info from the same anonymous intelligence sources. So there could certainly be coordination without all these people even having to be on board with it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I am, I am, I'm glad that your response is like, Oh, they don't like this. I, I sense weakness. I'm going to keep hitting you there. I think that's the right response. Yeah. Well, let it be known that I don't I, drive and I don't feel uh, even a little bit. Any suicidal, suicidal so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, we, uh, rally in the streets if anything ever happens to me. <laughs> LOL. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Everything's fine. Everything's can fine. I, can I um, put in one more thing before you move on? I know it's been a lot of time. 
Sure. Um, I was just going to say, I talked to uh, Jimbo and Lana Knight from the uh, Leonard Peltier Defense Committee, and they said they would be very, very happy to um, do an interview for you if you wanted to. They've been part of the American Indian movement for a lot of years, and I, I did email you, but for whatever reason, it wasn't send for like three days. So somewhere deep in to your the, inbox is to the bad about, faith, the bad faith inbox. Yeah, I, yeah. Bad okay, perfect. At Gmail or whatever. I'll, I'll send another one with contact info. Um, but yeah, just don't forget. Okay, perfect. Thank you for the reminder. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank you for Thanks calling for in, Andrew. The Keep the faith. I really appreciate that. All right, Nicholas, what's on your mind this evening? Hey. Hey. What's going on? What's on on your mind? So I had a... a, Let me just look. Sorry, let me just sit up. um, You know, I spoke to you a while ago, well, not a while ago, but about Pete Buttigieg, and you said he triggered you because you reminded you of people you went to college with. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to Coleman Hughes and you talk, and he really triggered me. I got so annoyed. He reminded me so much of people I went to college with. I was like, "Oh my god, I can't, I can't even, I can't even breathe." I'm so annoyed. <laughs> no, I mean maybe that's that's exaggerating, but he was just, I I, I like the conversation, but he just he just he just reminded me of what I went to Columbia as well, and he just he, there was something about the tone of his voice which just, oh, I, I. What what about it? Can, can you be more specific? You know, it's it's a kind of, you know. This is a huge generalization, right? But I mean, like, but I suppose we're just chatting. <laughs> um, but like, I always think that like liberals are people who, people who are on the left tend to be like more communal, right? They sort of, they, you know, often I listen to people on liberals speak and they say, well, on average, 80% of these people believe this, 80% of people believe that. Whereas conservatives, they only care about themselves. They're, 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 sort, they're sort of the other side of the id, right? It's this kind of, and so you say to him, oh, this is what happens with police, police, police brutality and he says well i spoke to this one guy who did what, karate or some shit i, I forget mm-hmm. uh, uh jujitsu mm-hmm. he's like and this guy says if we could teach everybody jujitsu uh, without even i mean <laughs> a mass training of police officers on jujitsu this is this is the solution i mean it just but it was just this kind of like well i talked to this one guy and this one guy says this and you just think well but that's not uh, I, I, I got really annoyed. Yeah, well, look, the, the funny thing is, I mean, I, I obviously get it, but, you know, if you... But it was a distill, great conversation. If you distill the point that police officers' lack of confidence in how to de-escalate a situation absent shooting someone dead is a yeah. big part of why they shoot so many people dead, I have no conceptual, uh, you know, disagreement with the idea of police officers... Or whatever arts. we want to call them, being better <laughs> trained and to defend themselves physically and to restrain people physically and using other non-lethal tools, you know. And if it if you know we're spending all of this money on like uh, military grade tanks, hey, I have no problem if they <laughs> learn how to handle themselves physically in a way that makes them more uh, you know less likely to pull a gun. I have you know like. I, 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 like I said in the, in the show, there was a time when I probably would have also been very triggered by some of the things that he said, but I've been trying to look, I had this experience with a friend of mine from college 
who we didn't talk basically for a couple of years after 2008 because of all the fights we got in about Obama. Huh. And this was yeah. before Twitter and our entire conversations. We had these long email threads that are all archived in there for me to read between all of us in our friend group. And when I go back and look at the thing, the arguments that were being made, I just, I see them so differently now. He, he you know, he was saying things about Obama and how his race was an advantage and right. how he was, you know, not facing full criticism for the things that he got wrong because he was black. And at the yeah. time, given all of the racism that Barack Obama was experiencing, I couldn't hear that. Like yeah. I couldn't hear it. Yeah. It seemed to be so myopic. And in retrospect, you know, I think there's some truth to that. You know, you know, obviously I, we I, talk about it all the time. I get your point a hundred percent, but like, I think that that's, it's, 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 I think, unfortunately there are people with whom when you're having a debate, you have to, you have to, you have to create such a vacuum clean lane because they're, they're totally unwilling to, to address their biases. I, I, I thought about this kid I went to college with who used to say to me, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to get a beer with George Bush. And I was like, George Bush doesn't drink. No, I know that sounds like a, like I, I'm answering his statement with his stupid statement with a stupid statement. But it's just funny to me that somebody should aspire to do something with somebody who, who they wouldn't even be able to do. And I was like, George Bush's best friend is a person he prepped with, a Phillips. He's not getting but a you, drink with you. But, but okay, you, but you know, George but like, Bush doesn't drink because he's a recovering alcoholic, not because he's not a good time with a beer. <laughs> right. But, no, but you get what I'm saying, though. Like, it's, 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 it's like this thing where, like, that's his bias. His bias is that he thinks he would like to have a drink with that guy. And when people were saying, well, my bias is that I think that although Obama doesn't say everything 100% perfect, I think he's a smart, you know, I think all of these nice things about them. And they're like, no, 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 I don't accept your bias. I don't accept your bias at all. And, you know, I think towards the end, you were, you were kind of saying to Coleman, listen, you know, I think I find speaking to you quite, I can't remember how you phrased it, but um, there was a kind of, you said like, because you were people of, of similar, similar color, you kind of understood, or similar, uh, similar ethnicity, you, you felt a certain comfort in having conversations with them. And mm. everybody has these kinds of biases. And it's just that, well, it's, I would wait a much more it's, prefer it's somebody just say, that, well, hey. It's not just I, you're black and therefore I feel comfortable. It's that when I'm talking to certain conservatives, and he doesn't identify as a conservative, but when I'm talking to certain conservatives, I feel I I feel from what they're saying that they frankly hmm. don't see black people as equal. Yeah. Like that's a subjective point of view. I can't prove it. I'm not naming names, but that yeah. is tacit in some of the things that they are arguing. Yeah. And when I, there are, I guess there are definitely black people who think that they are like intellectually genetically inferior to white people, I guess, but on the <laughs> whole, some baseline self-esteem exists yeah. <laughs> and people like Coleman and Glenn Lowry, they obviously, you know, have a, in a healthy way. Like they like themselves. They see themselves yeah. as smart. They value their own intellect. They see themselves as worthy and, and that a certain kind of black intellectuals, objective is in is not diminishing the value of black people the way that so many white conservatives is it's about proving that they are basically better than the stereotype or creating distance between themselves and other black people by validating certain concerns from conservatives and demonstrating that they can be 
an example of something better than the mean. But yeah. it's not about diminishing black people. It's about holding themselves up as an example for who they think black people should be, which again, is not my approach and not ideal yeah. from my perspective, but I, I have a much easier time talking to someone who ha, you know, says, you know, who, who believes in the ability, you know, who believes in the equality of black people because they see that in themselves and see themselves as equal as opposed to a white conservative who, whether they know it or not, are sometimes saying things that suggest that they frankly don't, they don't see black people as equal. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I just always find it funny that like, you know, I listened to this, they're having some debate about the Supreme Court and they're talking about um, uh, what you call it, affirmative action. And I always find it funny that people don't get that, you know, and these, I used to have these arguments all the time, but like people just, the same people who get so exercised about affirmative action don't seem to get any, any juice out of legacy admissions. That doesn't seem to offend them at all. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of, and, and, and that's what I mean about biases, right? That there's this kind of like, well, this is totally unfair. This shouldn't happen. Everybody should, should get in based on your, on your grades. And you go, well, what about legacy admissions? And they go, well, that's just one of these things that happens. You can't change that. And it's like, well, okay. Why can't yeah. affirmative action be one of these things that happens that you can't change? You know, I and think the answer is, well, frankly, I don't know. It would be really cool if Democrat, like, the thing is that, that what Democrats don't do is that they don't wage their own affirmative campaigns. So, yeah. like, they will bring up legacy in the face of Republicans trying to get rid of affirmative action. But there's never going to be, like, the Democratic Party at the DNC. They say, we've got to get rid. There, there's so much inequality in America. We've got to get rid of the scourge of legacy admins. Yeah. You know, 24% of the spots, something like really high like that, like a quarter of all the spots at our most elite institutions that would confer the biggest benefit to uh, college graduates um, go to people who are already privileged and come from wealthy families. We've got to take it into this, right? Because that, yeah. that has its own energy. That's its own campaign. And that forces Republicans to respond. When you only are bringing something up as a rebuttal to somebody else's argument, you sound weak. You sound like you're not yeah. principled. And it's the same for this crime stuff, by the way. If I were running the Democratic Party, which I am not, <laughs> uh, I would have. They, they would be doing a full court press about this fentanyl, fentanyl stuff, and not fentanyls in your Halloween candy, obviously. <laughs> but fentanyl is out here in all of these drugs, killing people left, right, and center. That is really a problem. So we're gonna we're gonna have a whole campaign about we're the ones that are gonna keep this horrible thing from destroying your communities we're the one that's gonna legalize marijuana so that you can actually just regulate this stuff and make it safe to consume instead of the republicans who get to lead on it and then they make it all about drugs coming in over the border we got to get rid of you know <laughs> latino immigrants blah 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 like you if you just bring it up when they say they're like xenophobic immigration thing then again it doesn't sound like you actually have a vested interest in resolving what is a real crisis. Yeah. Uh, That's a tangent. I'm sorry. This is not at all what you called to talk about. <laughs> no, I love that. My, um, I, I, yeah, so then go my ahead. Other little, my, my other thing, the other thing, which was not as interesting, but, but for me was super interesting. So then I listened to Coleman's podcast mm-hmm. where, where you appeared. Mm-hmm. And I did, I realized I didn't know, I didn't know you'd grown up all over the, I mean, I guess maybe I haven't listened long enough, but. I, I was able to do lots of creeping on like your your whole background. I was super fascinated by that. You lived in Saudi Arabia, then you lived in Kenya. Mm-hmm. 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 Huh. Uh, and then you gave me shit about going to the the 
the movie theater on 38th Street. That's probably because you went to that that high school around there, right? There's a high school around there. I, yep. I, I used to go to uh, high school Nations in New York. International School on 24th. Yep. And we lived on yeah, 38th. I went, to, I went to a god-awful German class there. They used to keep a German school at Eunice on a Saturday. Oh, and why my did, mother what, made what me is... because she hated me, sent me there. <laughs> <laughs> when when was this, Nicholas? Oh, gee, what is this? Oh, I don't know. How old it are you? Before... I, I'm older than I should be. I'm 46. Okay, you're not that much older than me. So I hear, this was like I mean, maybe 1980, I, I can't remember when it was. But I used, okay. to, I used to go to a French school uptown. And then my mm. dad also worked for the UN. So when you mm. said your mom worked for the UN, that really shook a chord. And uh, yeah, my mom sent me to this German school, which was god awful. Ugh. Do you speak Ooh. German? No. <laughs> Everybody Not at all? Did, which was great. No, and my sister speaks great German. Everybody's multilingual. I'm obviously, I obviously didn't get whatever. When they were handing out those brains, I just <laughs> I was so like, I'm no, same, thank you. I, I'm <laughs> the same way. I, you know, people are always asking me because of having lived these places, do you speak the language? Yeah. And I say, I can say I don't speak Arabic in a horrendously accented Arabic. And I can say <laughs> I don't speak Swahili. And Swahili is something that my mother insisted on. My mother. My mother liked to, you know, they, they like pump your gas in Kenya, you know, like it's New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. And every time we went to the gas station, she insisted on, like you know, making the request in Swahili, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, it's cool if you're white. <laughs> if you're black, <laughs> then everyone's now assuming you're Kenyan and is like chit-chatting with you. And then my mother has to say, see lady Kiswahili, Nini Natoka America, and her horrible accent. I don't know why anybody thought she was Kenyan in the first place, the way she was talking, but... I was every single time. Imagine for six years of your life, every time you go to the gas station, you watch the same dosi do between your mother and the gas station attendant. But never mind. That's that. The, how to ask for gas and how to say I'm not. A, I can't speak Swahili. I'm American. Are is the limit the limits of my Swahili? So apologies to any Kenyans or Tanzanians in the in the chat. Didn't Eunice force you to take like five languages? I always thought that was the game over there. Girl, I took French and I speak bad French. <laughs> <laughs> my my school in Kenya didn't have like a lot a ton of language options and so what made sense to, it was like you know French Spanish basically maybe something else like Italian or something but living yeah. in Africa my rationale was well then this makes sense to take Spanish and French speaking Africa is anywhere close <laughs> to here but it's a lot closer than any Spanish speaking country <laughs> so that's what I went with and now I have regrets obviously living in America but that's what I did. No, you got French. You could go in like, I don't know, you go like, uh, go to the like French movie, French movie uh, things that they have uptown. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly it just makes ordering at a restaurant slightly less awkward. That's the extent of my French. But mostly I'm not eating at French restaurants. Mostly I'm eating at like Mexican restaurants and sounding like, <laughs> like just the most horrific embarrassment that ever was. So I don't know. I'm working on myself. I, I tried Duolingo for a second. I was dating a guy who had these like Spanish language excursion trips because he was a public defender and his job used to send him to try to get Spanish fluent. And I went on his trips with him for a couple of the, the years that we were dating. And I would come back from these places. I, I got back from Costa Rica and I was like, I got this. Like I made some progress. I got it in my ear. Like I'm not sounding so stiff and wooden. Like I got this. And then like a week later it was over.
But I'm, I'll get my Duolingo out. La, La Manzana. How do I say Apple? I didn't get very far. Yeah, Guys, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm very, very bad at languages. <laughs> Listen, I, I, the worst part about, I, not only do I not speak German, but the school that they, because Eunice is for like, because like it was a UN school, so they had proper German people there. So it was actually a school for German kids. Mm -hmm. So when my mother, who didn't speak no German, mm -hmm. and a woman who spoke no English, explained mm -hmm. to her that I was a beginner, Mm -hmm. What she took from it was I was 12, but I had the, the, the speaking skills of a four-year-old. Mm -hmm. So she put a 12-year-old in a class with five and six-year-olds. <laughs> and I couldn't explain to them that I was, that my mother didn't understand what was happening. So I was like, I was, I was like Gulliver. I was like this 12-year-old <laughs> in these little small chairs. And then it would come over to me and she'd speak to me very slowly and go, Apful, Nicolas? And I go, yeah, Apful. Oh, they're good, Nicolas. They're good, Nicolas. <laughs> Which means Apple, Nicholas, and I go yes, Apple. And she goes, oh, good. But anyway, there's no need to get over this trauma. <laughs> Lol, I'm glad you called it, Nicholas. That was that was a delightful romp down memory lane for us, if not for everybody else who's like, who, what are these? Yeah. What are these two kids talking about? But it was great to hear from you. Love um, Pink Floyd, and one thing I want to bitch about is how much money is being spent on Senate races in Georgia. It's unconscionable. Yeah. I think people want to get pissed off. That's what I would get pissed off about. Yeah, How much it's money uncomfortable. Gets spent makes me it, sick. It would be great if this could be a pivot into like campaign finance reform, but yes. no, that's not going to happen. So, sorry, I shouldn't say things like that. We should push for that to happen. I shouldn't be defeated. <laughs> that should be a thing that the left is advocating for going forward in this moment, and it, we can yeah, make yeah, it happen. They're good. <laughs> 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 Danke. <laughs> Thank you, Nicholas. <laughs> All, right, All right, keep it beep. All right, Shelly, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, Brie, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, great interview with Roger Waters. I just, it was not an interview that I was really expecting. <laughs> yeah, me so either. Really Can I tell you, he reached out to the the podcast. What he reached out, I was, cause that, that was going to be my follow-up. Like, how did you get in contact? Yeah. He reached out to the podcast. I'm not sure why. I mean, he's been, a, he was on Katie's show recently. He's been, you know, doing the rounds a little bit, but I don't know how yeah. we got on his radar, but. Well, pro we probably Aaron Mate and Max Blumenthal because they're, they're kind of in the same. Sure. Sort for of sure. circles, sort of the anti-imperialist circles. So surely mm -hmm. he got. And also he, um, I understand that during your recording, he had to basically like, he lost track of time and he actually had another mm -hmm. interview. <laughs> and I just saw this because I, I saw the other interview that he did, but oh, he that's mentioned so funny that... cause people, people were mentioning that he, um, uh, butchered my name in a kind of adorable way. And I didn't yes, know was. where Rihanna that was. Love May. <laughs> Hey, close enough. Honestly, I've gotten I've gotten a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, it, it, it was it was so cute because like you often see him do that whenever he's like going on these tangents or whatever. He goes, "Oh God, I forgot the name." Mm. Um, and he did it a couple times with you, and he 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 did it then. Luckily, some people in the comments corrected him. But anyway, <laughs> no, no, I certainly take no offense. But yeah, I I told him it was going to be an hour, and then we started getting into it, and he didn't say anything about the time, and so I didn't say anything about the time, and it was about twenty past. Um, and he's like, "Oh shoot, I have to go." And Armand, our producer, did such a good job of like just neatening it up at the end. <laughs> um, and now, I, I did recorded think it was a, little... a little bit of 
abrupt, but you know, congrats to Arnon for, for like being able to sort of end it like somewhat smoothly. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. I have to check out that interview, but is there anything else in your mind, Shelly? Um, yeah. And then Jimmy Dore actually shouted you out. I was listening for a little bit, um, earlier. Jimmy Dore shouted you out at Sabiana's show. Yeah, I saw I saw the title of it as it was live, and then it just went off, and I I wanted to watch it, but obviously it was on here. I'm I'm glad I saw that he co- so he covered the Biden student debt stuff. Yes, and he specifically the, during the part that I tuned into, which was probably like 30 seconds before he actually said this, he had said something about like I didn't know that they'd done this with student debt, that they basically planned it. You know, basically kudos to Brianna Joy Gray for you know, going out there and finding it. So you've gotten oh, quite cool. a bit of kudos. I appreciate that. Yeah. I really, I really do appreciate that. Like, I do feel like if this were any other, I'm not trying to be an asshole. Like, I'm not trying to be self-aggrandizing, but like, this is not a, this is not a frivolous charge. I, again, I'm not saying I can prove anything, but the evidence speaks for itself in many respects. And I feel like if this were any other, situation any other outlet any other president like when when michael moore predicted trump won like he did the circuit even though they all hate michael moore for his politics everyone had him on to do the prediction circuit and it's kind of it's very interesting to me (laughs) that there hasn't been any interest in having any conversation in the mainstream about what's happened here with student debt it seems like everyone wants to like bury it pretend it doesn't exist maybe it'll happen when there's something more definitive about the policy going forward, you know, when the appeals process runs itself through. But the whole point of what Professor Jed Sugarman said on Bad Faith was that this is the kind of argument that could lose 9-0. Like, he doesn't have any optimism that the Supreme Court would look favorably on the case as it was, you know, designed. As, it, yeah, as, well, you know, yeah. The, de- the designation is to keep poor people poor. I mean, I mean, that's the whole structure of our legal system is that there are no wins for the working class and the small man. I mean, so obviously, why would Joe Biden not choose to kick it to the court system where then you can just wring your hands and be like, oh, sorry, guys, the court stopped it. You know, those terrible courts that we have no control over. Yeah, it is fascinating. That I mean, like to, to the uninitiated ear, that sounds so cynical. And I've been trying to put myself in the shoes of people who – you know, don't have a reason to hate Joe Biden, think that he's doing a good job, have been kind of in that media bubble for this whole time, to have some some bitter ex-Bernie broad say something like, Joe Biden rigged this. And I, excuse me, I, I, look, I understand why that's, like, difficult for people to swallow. But at this point, my God, it's happened to so many things. Like, when the, when the eviction moratorium happened, um, you know, they got it, like, the day before the, the Supreme Court invalidated it. I, you know, it didn't sit right with me, but I wasn't going to say I fully know for sure that this was a scam, you know, because who can say at a certain point, you know, when the $15 minimum wage thing happened, when the force went, all of these things have been cumulative for us, you know, and at Mm -hmm. this point, this one is like such a slam dunk because no one has given any rationale. It was the same with force the vote. Like I'm open to reasons for why we shouldn't do this. But when no one's giving a rationale, no one can provide a single glimmer of argument for why you would use the HEROES Act as opposed to the um, Higher Education Act. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm open I mean, to any argument. Okay, there is well, none. then here, 
then here, here's, then here's my argument. Sure. Capitalism creates its own contradictions. Every single time capitalism moves, every single time it takes a step in a direction, it always takes a step in the direction of pissing off working class people. And it can piss it. And, and so you'll have this situation where on the right, you know, people like Robbie, they'll sit there and be like, we can't have student debt re reform until we have just college tuition reform, which is ultimately I 100% agree with. College should not be based on predatory loans. That, that's not what education should be based off of. We want a productive society. We want people to be educated, right? So I agree with that. But at the same time, that misses the same point of people are suffering now and you don't have a productive economy now with how you've structured up. Capitalism always creates its own contradictions. And so every single time they do a step where they go, where the capitalists go, well, we don't really want to do this. So we're going to couch it under all these other types of things. We're going to obscure it and we're going to make it easily defeated. All it does is it points out to the people that are, that don't have any type of power. It points out that the power is not in their favor and it's not working for them. Yeah. I mean, I guess, itself. Yeah. I guess what, I guess what I was saying was that I'm, I'm open to there being a good faith reason for Biden taking the approach that he did. Like there, oh, there could, I'm, not, I'm nobody's legal expert. Like there could be some, you know, quirk of the higher education act that doesn't make it available for certain kind of recourse. And like, da, da, da. like I, I, I'm willing to admit if I don't have a, a full sum understanding of the law as somebody else. However, that argument has not come down the pike. Nobody who was yelling at me earlier this week was saying, Oh, you missed this, that, and the other. All they were saying is you're a dumb idiot. And yeah. uh, this is unhinged and LOLs can't believe this and like shit like that. Like no one was making an argument. Moreover, I double checked. I went back to look at what Sparky was saying and what um, Astra Taylor was saying. Like the, the, I don't know how you get more expert than that. I don't know how you get more expert than two people who work for the debt collective. One of them who founded the debt collective, the other who is a consumer debt advocate. Uh, who were both echoing the sentiment. Sparky was reiterating that if he had just canceled all the debt instead of making it means-tested, they wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. There wouldn't have been time to file an injunction. And the two, the, the two people who have standing have standing on the basis that they were excluded from the means-tested program, right? So they wouldn't, they wouldn't have, they would have had to come up with something else with respect to the standing case. And so, like, if everyone's agreeing with me, Asher Taylor just wrote this article in, um, I think, the Guardian in which she says, quote, Biden could have directed the education secretary to cancel people's debts using the compromise and settlement authority granted in the Higher Education Act. But instead, his administration invoked a different and more limited legal authority. Um, and it was that legal, limited legal authority that the Texas judge formally took issue with. They also made borrowers apply for the program instead of automatically issuing cancellation, a slow-moving process that brought their billionaire-backed opponents uh, valuable time to cook up legal arguments, find plaintiffs, and line their cases up with sympathetic Trump-appointed judges poised to tow the conservative line like that is literally what i've been saying since friday when this news came down you, and i don't see anybody lining that. up to tell these people that they're dumb dumb idiots who don't know what's going on it's me i mean maybe maybe you didn't phrase it in that exact way but you were saying this i've watched your episode i watched i've been watching you do these types of things talking about student debt for months this is not a new take for you this is not new 
This is not new. And I didn't say anything. All I did was retweet out the things that I've been saying for a long time. And people right. lost their shit. And well, nobody's under- responded to why Ashton. Okay, if I'm wrong, is Jed Sugarman wrong? Is Ashley Taylor wrong? Is Sparky Abraham wrong? No. All of the, and this is the thing, like, I, I am not interested. Like I saw the whole beef with Abby and the humanist report and the accusations of racism and all of that. Like I, I know better than to wade into that kind of a thing, but like someone else has to explain to me why these blue check big brains from Vox and the Biden administration and whatever feel so comfortable lining up to tell me that I'm stupid on a regular basis, ignoring every like source that I'm citing. I'm literally not even making my own arguments here right now. It's, it's getting to a point where like, honestly, I'm pissed off. (laughs) Well, to be frank, we should all be pissed off. We should all be pissed off. But I will have to say that this, this seems like what they're trying to shift the argument to is an expert versus expert takedown. Like I'll bring my experts, you bring your experts, We'll have a face-off and everyone will just sit on the sidelines. And it's it's the same thing that we do in electoralism. You know, we sit there and we go, oh, well, which one's the lesser evil? Which well, one's except the there, there are no experts on the other side. Like, this is what I'm <laughs> saying. Like, there are no counter-arguments. There is none. There is none. Right. Well, I'm, I'm talking more about, like, your economic experts that are going to say this is going to impact inflation. So I don't give a shit about that. Do. That's not that's not well, the no. argument that the Biden libs are arguing right now. The Bi- this is not an argument with conservatives. The conservatives are, are out of this because this is an executive decision anyway. Fuck conservatives. Biden already bent the knee and he said he was going to do this. So now this is a conversation yeah. with Biden people who are not arguing this is going to cause inflation because this is their plan. Oh. They're arguing that they, oh, well, shucks, we just couldn't get it done. Right. Well, and and the people. Him. I, I'm I'm saying he did this on that. There's a strong argument that he did this on purpose, and so the the counter argument just does not exist. That that's what no, I'm saying. There's no there's no rationale presented so far. There could be, but they haven't had one yet. There's zero rationale for why Biden would have taken this approach. And I gotta say something else. I adore <laughs> you know I adore Sparky and Astra. Yeah. Uh-huh. But even when I had them on the podcast. When I had Jed on, they were concerned about me platforming Jed because they felt like I was giving air to arguments that Republicans might not have cottoned on to yet. And I was basically potentially hurting Biden's legal efforts to defend this process. And Jed's feeling, and I share Jed's feeling, was that these Republicans aren't stupid. Just because Jed publishes an article in The Atlantic or comes on my podcast doesn't mean they're not going to be aware of the arguments that are available to them. And that the better thing to do, the more important thing to do, I'm sorry? No, I said, I'm like, like, seriously, like imagining that the Republicans don't have just these trolls embedded in these fucking think tanks, like everywhere that are just constantly. They they are not stupid. They have. Like, I don't, like, Republicans are not stupid. They have legal experts and they know what the vulnerabilities were regardless. Yeah. So the thing to do is to push Biden to cure the vulnerabilities before it became an issue. That was my goal yeah. in having Jed on and having everybody on. And look, lo oh. and behold, if we had, I, I think, like, this is a strategic difference. Like, and I respect where Astra and Sparky were coming from. But strategically for me, I would have been very aggressive about the Biden administration's um you know, vulnerabilities in drafting their case or or structuring this program 
well before it got to the courts because now they're in a legitimacy crisis. And as Sparky points out, he can still just cancel all student debt tomorrow if he wants to. Just do it. Don't make a form. Don't make something that can be challengeable. Don't make it means tested. Just fucking cancel all the student debt under the Higher Education Act and nobody can do anything about it. He can still do that. But like they they had this, this different strategic approach where they were going to give the Biden administration the benefit of the doubt and hope that it succeeded. And I don't know. I think that's a mistake. It's obviously no, it was a mistake. It's, it's, it's always a mistake. It's just like Pramila Jayapal sitting there and saying like, oh, we'll decouple, you know, the bill. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but there was that one where, you know, all the progressives yeah, the were build back saying better. that we got to keep it together. Yeah, build back better. And and then they decoupled it. I mean, they always fucking give in. They always do. And and yeah. and it's like they, they really do set themselves up for failure. And then whenever, you know, they're really down in the count, like before the midterms, they really, they, they fear monger. They talk about like all the minute gains that they've made, which are, are just, are just small. And they're so means tested that they affect 5% of the population. And you really, maybe that is their plan. Maybe they only want to just fire up, you know, just a small percentage of the population so they can squeak by in midterms. I mean, maybe that is the whole entire point. I mean, yes, I think that, that very frankly was the whole thing and it worked. And this is why I like I didn't say this and I should have. No one should have voted for Democrats until the money was in our bank accounts. Yep. Sorry. Absolutely. Don't vote for Democrats to the extent that you're still in the business of voting for Democrats. God bless. <laughs> I simply would not do so until the money, whatever they have promised, hit your bank account. Because those people down in Georgia, they got screwed. They didn't get anybody's $2,000 check despite that being the promise of them voting for Joe Biden. They didn't get their – all those HBCU students, the three um, uh, HBCUs in Atlanta, in Atlanta alone, none of those people and the graduates and the hubs in that place got all of their student loan debt canceled, which Biden had promised. Nobody got shit. They didn't get their voting rights bill. They didn't get the George Floyd bill. These were nope. these were all promises that were made. If you win me, Georgia, I'll fulfill. That was Joe Biden. Well, Brianna, what this really sounds like is if you're going to criticize the work that Biden did on HCBUs, then you ain't black. I mean, that's really <laughs> kind of what I'm getting from this. I'm totally <laughs> just kidding. I mean, but no, it's 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 incredibly cynical and really disgusting. I thought your conversation with Roger Waters was was super great. Love him. I love him to death. He's just got such a good heart and a good soul. And you can really feel yeah. just how much, you know, like the suffering of people really bothers him. And so I thought it was good. And he yeah. actually kind of did convince me because I kind of asked you the question about like, is this something that we sort of need to like talk about is, is like, when is, when does the left get involved in um, intervention? And I think Roger convinced me. Just by saying, like, God damn it, no war for 100 years. Hmm. And then let's reassess. Like, I don't know. That that's that was pretty convincing to me. As yeah, far we'll as see. Just, like, we'll see what happens. All right. Well, we'll then see, finally, we'll, we'll here's see my what happens thing. and how we feel about it when it happens. <clears throat> Especially considering what we had just talked about. I've got to turn you on to this song, and maybe you'll play it in an outro one day. But it's a song called by Phil Oaks, 
O as an Oscar, C as in Charlie, H as in, I can't remember the correct term for it, um, and then S as in Sierra, Phil Ox, and Love Me, Love Me, I'm a Liberal. We've used this as an outro before. Oh, you have? It's mm-hmm. so good. It is good. It is good. I think we did use it on a Thomas Frank episode of the podcast, and I used it on a call in within the last month or so. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's 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 super fucking good. Anyway, I, I really appreciate everything you do. Great conversations. Um, can't wait to hear more. Thank you so much for calling in, Shelly. Keep the faith. Oh, also the FTX. Oh, I'm so sorry. I already pressed the button. I hear you talking, but I already... I already had next to it. Apologies. But there was a really long line here. So if everyone could just try to be tight, um, I think the people behind you would appreciate it. What's on your mind, Andy? Hey, how are you doing? Can you hear me? I'm doing well. Yeah, what's on your mind tonight? So the so uh, I guess the thing I wanted to talk about was when, I forget his name, Pink Floyd, was talking about stopping uh, humanitarian abuses. I thought about... Um, how a lot of people, you know, uh, I guess truth is relative in this way because people, some people don't believe that, you know, the, there are Nazis in Ukraine. Some people think that China isn't doing humanitarian abuses. Some people think that America isn't doing humanitarian abuses, all that. So I guess my question is, I don't know, do you have any, like, things that you don't argue with people about that you just believe is objective truth. Well, I guess we talked about that with the uh, uh, Nazi or Holocaust denier, but I guess what I mean is truth nowadays seems so difficult to just accept. And I think it's good that we don't accept just blanket truth, but it's also difficult to have a conversation when no one, I guess, believes in kind of the foundation of what's happening around the world. So I, I don't know about you. I, I actually don't know. Well, it's not that – well, a couple of things. I don't know how many Nazis are in Ukraine. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. Um, I know that it's – there's a weird number of Nazis that keep turning up on CNN. I know that there is in the West a cultural um, – support for what's the guy's name bandera who is a kind you know in a kind of weird uh civil war ish kind of way confederate flaggy sort of way it's not clear to me i don't fully understand to what extent it's just like southerners liking the flag which to be clear i also don't love the confederate flag and to what extent it's like full blown acknowledged self-admitted white supremacy um, I, and I, and moreover, I don't know that, you know, I don't know what the number is, like how many Nazis have to exist in a country for me to not feel, regardless of whether I feel like America should be involved, that there is a kind of moral commitment to helping that those people are supporting those people and resisting an invasion. I don't know the answers to any of those questions. Mm-hmm. My, my feelings about us involvement in Ukraine don't depend, don't really relate at all, frankly, to that those questions of Nazi involvement because I don't know the answers to any of those questions. My moral grounding is elsewhere, um, which is not to say that those things don't matter, but like I do think it's possible to have a conversation about U.S. involvement 
without making claims that I, I personally can't support. Maybe other people can, but I can't support about how influential, you know, Nazis are, or how many Nazis are getting American weapons and what they're doing with it and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Okay. What do you say to people like in your DMs that were angry about you for pointing out how Biden should have used the, was it the CARES Act to fully get student debt off the table? And it seems that they don't even want to believe, or it seems that they don't want to accept that what they've been doing, like as liberals, they haven't been fully committed to making the world a better place because they believe in, um, what's it called? Electoralism as a valid way of changing the world. I want to make sure you inter- I understand the question. So it's the heroes. Mm-hmm. He, Biden used the Heroes Act as okay, opposed the to one. the um, Higher Education Act. The Heroes okay, Act okay. is a nine eleven act. So, so the I idea, the, the thing that people are confused about, slash, willfully ignorant about on the internet, mm-hmm. is they say that because I said, I've been saying that Biden absolutely has the power to do this with the stroke of a pen using his executive authority, that there is some contradiction between my saying that and me also saying that Biden used faulty legal authority as the hook for his executive authority. So the thing about executive powers is like, yeah, the president has them, but it's not unlimited. The, the president can't just say everybody in America has to wear blue or I'm going to send you to the gulag. No, there's, <laughs> there are... There are congressional acts that have given the president latitude to have executive authority. So you still have to find the hook for it. And the idea is that the same authority that Biden is using to – that Trump first used to postpone student debt under the Higher Education Act is a broad authority that was from the 1960s that was explicitly designed for situations like this as opposed to the the HEROES Act – which is a post 9-11 act, which was, int- was intended to suspend student loan payments for people in an emergency like 9-11. So if you're a first responder, if you live downtown, if you were paying student loans and were in one of the building, you know, a building that was impacted by the Twin Towers falling, okay, you don't have to pay your student loans back. It's an emergency. It's a design for emergencies. Mm-hmm. The idea was Biden says COVID is an emergency, so we're going to use the HEROES Act. The problem is he's been walking around saying COVID is over. Moreover, the Supreme Court, where this is ultimately headed, has been very clear that it thinks COVID is over. We know this. It, it struck down all of the mandates over the summer. The Supreme Court thinks COVID is over. This is not subjective. It's not about what I think or you think. The Supreme Court, which will be the ultimate authority on this, we know thinks COVID is over. So why would you then design your student relief loan relief using an executive an executive authority hook the legislative hook as something that you know the supreme court is not going to agree with the idea right. that it's justified by the ongoing covid emergency so there is nothing inconsistent about me saying biden has the authority he does have the authority he chose to use bullshit authority either because he's stupid or because he willfully didn't want this program to go through Right. And I guess I'm asking, why do you think people are like, don't, like, what is it? Uh, willfully ignorant about that fact or not believe you? Because they hate me and they're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No. Fair um, look, because they have a really hard time believing that the Democrats aren't like really wanting them to have wonderful lives and aren't wonderful, charming people who always are like heroes in every situation. 
Like right. they're, they're having a hard time with that. And like, I get it. I might've felt that way when I was 15, <laughs> but like we're all big boys and girls in days now. And we can understand that the world works differently, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, it's very frustrating because I do think that there's some people who in good faith misunderstand, but most of the people who are coming from me on the internet right now are speaking from such a place of ignorance that to have as much vitriol as they do, given their knowledge base is as little as it is, is, um, I'm sorry, it doesn't give me a lot of sympathy for them or a desire to compassionately explain a goddamn thing. Of course, for sure. <laughs> all right, that's all I want to ask. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Thanks for calling in, Andy. All right, keep the faith. Keep the faith. <laughs> Jonathan, what's in your mind tonight? Jonathan? I see you're unmuted, but I can't hear you. Jonathan. Should I play a little Stevie Wonder while Jonathan works his his shit out? Oh, there you go. Okay. I was a little bit disappointed by the Coleman interview. Well, I just wanted more of a fight, you know, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to fight because he (laughs) won't do it. And um, before, uh, here's my disclaimer. Uh, okay. Every single policy platform that I platform, everything I believe, you know, m- Medicare for all, uh, wealth tax, the end of the drug war, community college, public housing, these all disproportionately help black people, right? But I don't like reparations. And I know if Coleman's not going to fight nobody, I'm going to about to lose all my followers because that's what they had to do. Devil's advocate, but nobody else is going to do it. So let's just imagine there's a plantation. The guy named Chuck doesn't have any chattel slavery. And he says, oh, I'll just rent you $1,000 a month and I'm going to pay you $900 a month. Oh, but your kids can live for free and they'll work off the difference. And they're like, oh, but that's just serfdom. So what's the difference? Oh, no, it's not serfdom because there's another place, a ranch down the road, and his name is Buck. And you can go live and eat at Buck's and his workers will live and eat at my place. And now it's not serfdom because it's not me taking it. Oh, and now you have a new need because you had to put these people back and forth. So Duck makes carriages and Duck's workers live on Chuck's plantation and Chuck's workers live and eat on uh, Buck's ranch and Buck's workers live and eat on Duck's factory where they make carriages, right? So like, oh, the obvious question here is it's not slavery, but what's the difference? And the answer to that question is a sword with two edges because the answer that leads you towards identity and towards reparations leads you away from leftism. Because if your answer to that is how – of course it's different. It's vastly different. How dare you compare yourself living in that situation I just described today to somebody who can prove to what one of their great-great-grandparents was a slave? Okay, if that's your take, that's fine. But consider what you just gave away to Robbie, to Tucker Carlson – when they come around and they're like, why don't you just get another job? Why don't you just move to another state? Why don't you just educate yourself and improve your station in life? Why don't you? Why don't you? Why don't you? You know, as if the neoliberal state education is just not another plantation, you know, another. But if you're a leftist, you know that debt bondage is bondage, is slavery. Wage slavery is slavery with extra steps. And the new one, the new serfdom, which is the ubiquitous monopolization of non-discretionary commodities with inelastic demand. You know, the problem with right libertarians is they only see unfreedom in its most vulgar, basic form. I have to tackle you, throw you in chains, 
put you in a cage and they're like, oh yeah, he's unfree. But when I take him out, your unfreedom goes from what? Zero to a hundred? Does it though? No, like it, it, it is, it's still slavery with extra steps. And if it's not slavery with extra steps, then what the fuck have we been bitching about every single day in here? You know what I mean? Jonathan, I'm afraid I don't, I don't, I don't think we can have a whole reparations conversation. But as much I, I as I, I feel like there's a certain rhetorical, validity, like I'm not mad at people who necessarily make that slavery is slavery arguments. Like there's a lot of different kinds of slavery. If we're talking about American chattel slavery, that is different. That is different. And I think it is diminishing to what happened to conflate like my student loans with my ancestors who were treated like animals, sold like chattel, raped and bred with each other like creatures, had absolutely no autonomy, weren't allowed to read, write, or have any political process, not allowed to have any compensation for their labor, had absolutely no promise of freedom, and existed in that state generation after generation for hundreds of years. And I think that this country, I mean, you can Google the number of the billions of trillions of dollars equivalent of free labor that happened at the expense of all four of my great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. And I think there's a very legitimate claim to people having recompense for the government having profited off of that free labor. Uh, Would you have a number or a date for that? For what? Recompense. What a number? A num- What do you mean a date? Well, it's just that it never takes the form of like I made, I made Sabby mad one time, and I was like, I know you don't mean going to the Sherwin Williams store and lining everybody up by hue from black to white and giving you whatever percentage of a hundred thousand you are along the line. I know you don't mean that, but it's easy to say what you don't mean. What do you mean? And I got the Hillary Clinton buzzword checklist. It was like education, immigration, taxation, education. But there was no numbers and there was no dates. There's never any numbers or dates. It's like by the time you start forming the syllables in your mouth, you could it, ten million dollars. To 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 whom? Each me, uh, give it to me. Like because it's irrelevant. Like it, you don't actually care about the number of a date. I'm sorry. I'll do respect. There have been reparations for interred Japanese people that were insufficient and not enough, but it uh-huh. happened. There have been reparations for uh, survivors of the Holocaust which have been insufficient, but happened. And no one's sitting around saying Jewish people don't deserve reparations for what happened to them because I can't put a precise quantity on what it meant for their whole families to be killed and their possessions stripped of them. Nobody says until we can have a scientific number, they don't deserve anything for what was done to them. So you can have a conversation, you pick a number, and then we can have a debate about whether it's sufficient or can be funded. But that is, the onus is not on me. I'm not the one who raped, pillaged, enslaved a whole population of millions of people and built an entire country off of their backs. That is somebody else's job. But I don't have to sit here and justify the legitimacy of this claim because I don't have a, a, an abacus in front of me and don't have a number. You can go talk to any number of reparations experts like Professor Darity or um, – uh, what's his face, whom I adore, whose name has flown out of my mind and who came on the podcast with Ice Cube. But, it, you know, that is, that is not, that is, that is something very inhumane, I got to say. If, if, if someone's family member were just killed in a car accident and they said, oh my God, that reckless driver owes me something, would you get up on their face 
and say, oh, you, how much exactly was your loved one's life worth? And until then, you should ha- be having a conversation about whether you're owed anything at all. But that person is still alive. Well, the reason, let's, how about the reason that, that it's, you might be, think it's ridiculous to say that the Mongols owe the Iranians reparations for the sack and burn of Baghdad? It's not because of how long ago it was or that you can't put a number on it. It's more like that the Iranians do not currently live in an ongoing system of systemic repression underneath the Mongols. Good. That's, there's a difference because black people still do. And my parents, yes, exactly, my exactly. parents were born without civil rights in the United States of America. And my father, who was the youngest of seven, was the only of his siblings and the first to go to an integrated high school in Virginia. Okay, so this is not some distant past. And since the day slavery ended, people have been writing op-eds about how black people need to get over it. And to the extent that there is a difficulty in in getting that money back and the the extent that these claims are attenuated, talk to the white people who didn't want to give reparations in the first instance. Talk to to Lincoln, who wanted to appease Southerners and pay them the value of their slaves instead of doing what people like James Garfield wanted to do with history, which I've learned about recently since my mother moved back to Cleveland and has been researching a lot about James Garfield, uh, one of Cleveland's own. Radical, who wanted radical reparations, who wanted a, a radical reconstruction, rather, that actually compensated slaves instead of co- compensating slave owners. But that is not that is not a question for me or a problem for me. And there is never going to be a time, it can be 10,000 years in the future with aliens whizzing around, and I'm going to say the exact same thing. Because you don't get to run out the toll, you don't get to run out the clock, and then claim that you can't do anything about it because you run out, ran out the clock. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not going to agree with that. But I respect your But it's not because of the of clock. It's because of the ongoing, like if you want to dismantle the ongoing systemic no, racism. No, no, no. Then- I don't want to, under- no, no, no. No, Jonathan. Ongoing systemic racism is a, is a separate project. Reparations exactly, exactly. is for harm done. There is a, it's a debt that claim. is owed. Yeah. Right. So this is not. I'm not. I'm not Tony Sikos. I'm not interested in a in a in a coming to terms with a public co- conversation. I'm not interested in white guilt. I'm not interested in any of that shit. That's separate and apart. God bless. Blah blah blah. Reparations is something else. You don't have to agree with me. It's probably never going to happen. But that's how I feel about it. That's how I feel about if, it. If we're playing a game of Monopoly and I'm like going to take five hundred dollars from you, but I don't take five hundred dollars from you. What I do is I give five hundred dollars to everybody else. That same question comes up again. Like, what's the difference? So it's like, would you, if you want a hundred thousand dollars, would you be okay from taking a hundred thousand dollars away from everyone who doesn't get it instead? What? As opposed who are to we giving a hundred thousand away from. Anybody who you doesn't fall under the umbrella of the recipients of reparations. Why would anybody get money taken away from them? What's the difference? That's the point of the monopoly. That's how fiat currency works. It's like a competitive system where if you get, you know, if, it, if, if I'm playing monopoly with you and I take $500 from you and where I'm playing monopoly with you and I give $500 to everybody except you, what's the difference? Like it's this, it's the same thing in a, in a fiat system, whereas everything's competitive and you're all competing with, like, do you think the people who don't receive the money are not going to have to pay the increase in prices that's going to come in tandem with the money? Oh, well, like, I don't know what you're asking me. What, what, what about, what about you? You sound like the guy in my, in my poverty law class who says, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't integrate neighborhoods because with, without compensating white people for their housing values going down because black people live next door. 
Like black people are currently an ongoing in an ongoing way continuing to suffer uh, the inability to capitalize on home ownership to buy into the core of the American dream because of these ongoing issues. And no one's sitting around saying, oh, God, we got to equalize that because, I mean, like, all these people are unfairly. No, it's bullshit. So, like, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but this argument's not going anywhere. Like, I, I, I admit that it's me. I am never going to <laughs> no, not so, support reparations. Okay, last last thing. You, like, wait a minute. No, no, no. I am never going to not support reparations. I completely respect you su- not supporting it. And not wanting to be involved in a political camp that does support it, like, God bless, I, it's not the center of my political project. But I, 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 as I live and breathe, I'm sorry, as a black American, I'm, I'm, I, this is personal. I am so exhausted by the la- amount of disrespect that black Americans get in the political context and anywhere else. The audacity. I'm, so, I'm really trying to rack my brain and think if I would ever step up to a Native American person and say to their face, you don't deserve shit because all your ancestors got genocided a long time ago. Buck up. It, 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 it's, a, it's a fiat currency. And if you get this money, then it's not going to help you out anyway. Like, come on, man. What are we even talking about? It's a, okay. If we have a housing program. This no, no, no. Be public no, no. housing. And we're going to apply for it. This for, isn't public housing. This isn't public housing. This isn't society. This isn't public programming. This is tort law. When somebody hurts you, when someone smacks you in the face, when someone breaks your possessions, when someone steals your car, you get to sue for recompense. That's all we're talking about here. And neither you think that black Americans have been hurt and deserve recompense and that Aetna and all of these companies that have been literally insuring slaves' deaths for payouts for their slave owner and existing and profiting off of the system for hundreds of years need to pony up and pay and the federal government and all of these people who have been advantaged by this need to pony up and pay or you don't. And I respect that you don't, but I don't especially want to um, moot it here. I got to say. I wanted to fight. I got it. So uh, thank you for your time. All right. Okay. Keep the faith, Jonathan. Sorry about that. I had already, I already pulled up Shelby. What's on your mind tonight, Shelby? Hey, Bree. Um, <laughs> um, I feel some type of way following that. That was a very spicy take. And um, I always, uh, me and my friends that listen to this podcast, I always talk about how poised you are. So it's nice to know that you're you're human and you can get worked up <laughs> if, if that uh, brought to that. Um, I'm just letting you guys know, like, I am not a nativist. Like, I am not, like, but there is a whole movement of people who feel this way about reparations, but also are so resentful. And I understand the resentment. I don't agree with them attacking other minority groups and stuff. But, like, I understand the resentment because it really does feel like everyone has a whole lot of rationales for why black people can't get stuff. But none of the smoke comes from anybody else. And it is starting to piss people off. And I get it. Yeah. And you guys are going to have to contend with a bunch of black people who are xenophobic assholes in a second if you don't lay off on this shit and show a little bit more respect to black Americans the same way you do to every other constituency group that has a claim. Well, <laughs> kind of led into <laughs> what I wanted to talk about. But before I get into that, I, I just want to say I didn't get to say the last time I called in, but um, I love your show. Like you brought me so many interesting people. I had no idea who Roger Waters heard of Pink Floyd, never listened mm-hmm. to him. But like just everybody from uh I wanna say Carl Hart talking about drugs, uh <laughs> just so many people you brought me 
brought to my consciousness that I now follow uh, Max Blumenthal, uh, Aaron Monte, all these people that I had no idea. So I just really appreciate what you're doing. Um, with that, I, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, with that, I, last time I called in, I didn't get to fully articulate my point of view. And this kind of came back up in your conversation today with Roger Waters. And obviously, uh, it's extended over the weekend with uh, Dave Chappelle's casting a lot of flack for his SNL monologue. So <laughs> I guess um, what I, what I want to articulate, or I guess uh, talk about is this idea of anti-Semitism and how this label gets thrown out on so many people. And it seems that uh, Dave touched on this in his monologue. And it seems pretty clear that I don't know the numbers of this community in America. And so I'm open to being corrected or telling me I'm off base. Disproportionate. Hello? Yeah, can you hear me? Oh, sorry. You just cut out after off base. You cut out for a second. Yeah. But I guess what seems uh, at least reasonable to deduce, deduce is that Jews seem to have disproportionate power and influence in our in our society. Not to say that all Jewish people uh, have power and influence or they are have mind control or anything crazy, but it just seems like when whenever someone says something about Jews, like the punishment comes down very swift and sternly. And there doesn't, and it just seems like Jewish people are overrepresented in all these areas, whether it is entertainment, finance, and it, if we are having this conversation that we've been having, especially since George Floyd, about dismantling white supremacy, it would seem like that we would have to talk about a white subgroup that has disproportionate power and influence. So I think the part of the issue here is, I mean, the Kanye problem is having a conversation about Jewish people that connects the power structures that I think are ripe for criticism in terms of recording contracts and artists not getting paid their worth and all of that stuff, who owns the masters, all of that stuff that we all know about exists, connecting that with the ethnic or religious identity of the people involved. And so I do think, you know, like fundamentally, what is the, I think we have to, you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of honing in on their Jewish identity as opposed to, you know, their the broader white supremacy or class power or anything like that? What is it, what does it add to the conversation? Unless we're specifically talking about like, APAC or one of these lobbying groups that's explicitly leveraging funds on the basis of a political project, um, you know, a polit political outcomes in, a, in, in support of uh, Israeli foreign policy. Do you know what I mean? And, and if you can't answer that question of why does, no. why does it matter that they're Jewish? I don't mean you, but I mean like in a mission, you yeah. if one can't answer the question, why does it matter that they're Jewish? It's not clear to me. I mean, like, th that is where I think we're running into a real problem of anti-Semitism with someone like Kanye. 
Now there's a separate there's a separate issue here, and maybe I'll take it away from the Ju- the Judaism for a second and go back to like the Chappelle show, the the Chappelle show, whatever it's not segment, but the um, monologue. No, 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 the show. Like his he did those four part series on Netflix. I think it was three or four. Okay. And then yeah. we talked about this last year, and the argument that Chappelle was making was similar to what you just brought up, which is that it does seem like some groups you get more blowback than up for other groups for saying similarly derogatory and insulting things. And Dave Chappelle's point, whether or not you agree with it, this was the argument that he was making, is that he can stand on stage and say things about punching women in the face and, you know, beating up a lesbian in the bar and inward this, that, and the other, and crackhead this, that, and the other. But if he says something about the LGBTQIA community, there's a certain different kind of backlash. Not that yep. it's not warranted, but why the backlash about that and not about all the other groups that he's been offensive to? And the counterarguments are the LGBTQIA community is more vulnerable, which there's some pushback about. You know, what if I'm, are you saying that I'm, I'm a black, lesbian, disabled woman? I don't deserve as much. You know, now we're playing these hierarchies of oppression. Is that really where we want to be? And, you know, I, I think that's I think that's a provocative and, and interesting question that it cannot be as easily dismissed as I think it was dismissed. I think it was dismissed because I think that Dave Chappelle went about making his point in not the most efficacious way. <laughs> but like yeah. I do think that there's a nugget of a point there. And if you, I, I don't, you know, there is. I think there. I think the reasons for having a heightened response in an LGBTQIA context and versus a heightened response. To, in the con- in a Jewish context where people are saying disparaging things about Jewish people, I think those are motivated by different kinds of things. I think one's more like of a generalized cultural pressure. One has to do with like genuine actual lobbying dollars and stuff. ADL, you know, an organization, an, or- an organized group with the AD- ADL and all these other kinds of groups that are well positioned to push back and well funded to push back mm-hmm. when anything happens. But that still begs the question, like, is that the basis on which we should be invested in derogatory comments about a group? It does seem to me that the argument that, like, one group is more vulnerable, let's say trans people, is a stronger argument for us to push back harder when they're insulted or attacked than there is a well-funded lobbying effort protecting them. But now, yeah, I, I also point, should, I should mention before I stop, just the Holocaust, that. obviously, right. is the other reason why people are very sensitive with respect mm-hmm. to Jewish people, legitimately so. But go ahead. No, I think uh, Max Blumenthal said something. He tweeted, uh, I don't know, maybe last week or something, just basically that American Jews have, you know, a lot of prosperity. And they are not, while they might be a minority group, they don't seem to be uh, especially marginalized. And I do think that it is uh, at least worth discussing that, you know, Spider-Man's uncle <laughs> said, <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. So if you have all this, all this power and influence, are you wielding it uh, in a meritorious or fair or just way? And I think that's worth, that's worth discussing. The, um, the other thing I kind of wanted to talk about uh, along this line is that we get into religion it feels like all of all of the major religions kind of have this uh, supremacy ideology attached to it. The Jews are God's chosen people. Um, Christians, if you do not believe in Jesus or are not a follower of Jesus, you are a uh, 
you are a heathen. And it, all, of the, all of these groups, um, uh, the five percenters think that the black man is God. <laughs> so, and, and all of these, if you just look at that on his face and everybody can accept that, it is by, uh, by default saying that if you are not in this group, you are not God or you are not God's chosen person. So they all have these ideologies that center supremacy on their their group, but it does feel like that that is acceptable for one community and not for others. And that's why the Kyrie thing really bothered me because I'm not religious and it's kind of like, all of this is kind of silly and they all have these similar tropes about them. But so why is he, why does he have to apologize for this and not anybody else? Well, again, like I want to do an episode on this because I do think that there are. It's one of those things like, like I didn't know, I never heard of "to the river to the sea" as like a trope. Mm-hmm. So there's there's tropes that exist that I, in my own ignorance, don't know about. And my understanding is that the the uh, black Israelites, it's not just a kind of innocuous. Oh, I have my own religion, and I think that we're the one true, we're the true the true Jewish people or what have you. That there is. Um, there's a million different sects, and they have some of them are very much so more extreme. Well, <laughs> yeah, and then there's an yeah. actual like, not just that I'm not the one Jewish, like that that the people who we think of traditionally as Jewish people are not right. the chosen people, and therefore there are implications to that charge that are more explicitly anti-Semitic. It's my understanding, but I don't know much about it. So again, I'm working on an episode with an expert who actually can speak to what it is, like what that's all about. But I'm I'm not especially comfortable weighing in too much okay. on it on it here yeah but no, I, I, I take I, your I, I get it because it's a very touchy uh and i definitely by by no means want to get you canceled <laughs> so please well, i just don't know i just don't know anything. anything about it like i yep. just know them as the guys who hand out poorly edited flyers on the corner but like i don't know anything about it so right. i can't be that helpful <laughs> yeah and last thing i wanted to say just about this uh episode and someone else i think maybe sylvester mentioned it as well I do think, um, and you've asked this a couple times on, on your episodes, just about when do when does America intervene? And I and I think that Roger did a great job just saying like, no, we shouldn't. And this is something my my sister said to me a long time ago, and it just kind of stuck with me, like with the whole the whole um, Hitler Hitler thing, mm-hmm. um, the idea like, oh, well, what do we do if there is another Hitler? And um, she told me her idea was that America is essentially Nazi Germany if <laughs> if uh, Hitler won. And so it's like we uh, as the left, seeing how America has treated all these groups, and especially Black Americans, but Native Americans, and the list goes on. America just doesn't have the the history or, or trust where we could say, well, they should be the police of anything. Like you, you can't be, I don't trust your intentions. So no, like we should always say no, no intervention until like we get left leadership or uh, positive leadership that we can trust. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. So I think we should always be like, no, no to intervention. You guys are, you guys are really something. Look, I completely accept if I'm alone on this. And I, I completely understand all of the arguments about all of the ways that America has oppressed and continues to oppress people both at home and abroad. Like I fully and I fully buy into the notion that if you were to count up all of the lives negatively impacted by the influence of America 
you know, foreign policy, domestic policy, sheer volume of lives, cruelty that was avoidable, that you could get a pretty gruesome and ugly number. But I got to say, absent that, that totaling, I'm, I'm, I got to say, I'm uncomfortable. I'm, I'm uncomfortable with being quite so cavalier about saying that if an actual Holocaust happened, like not, you know, the diffuse and meaningful. Would you trust Joe Biden to intervene and do the right thing and not be on the side of the Nazis? Like, would you trust him? No, but that's, that's not the question. The question is, do you think that there is a level of egregious behavior that would demand a response? Not that it's going to be Joe Biden or anyone else, but like, I don't know. Like, like don't like, the, the question is, okay, let's, let's make it Joe Biden. There's fully, fully the Holocaust and all that we know about it and 6 million Jews and all of that happening right now. I, look, if your answer is no, we should stay out of it. Like, I respect that. I claim it. I just don't say, trust say Joe Biden or any other I, president that, that I know about to intervene and do the thing that I would okay, want okay. to do. I don't trust it. I, I, I hear that. But, like, I have, I'm having a, a more difficult emotional time with the idea of having a laissez-faire attitude about an actual Holocaust. And I know that mm-hmm. that counterfactual is brought up in bad faith. I know all of that. All of that is true. But I... I think there are a lot of people who, in good faith, are wondering. It's like it's like the defund the police question. Mm-hmm. People are like, "Well, what happens if there's a crime?" And I don't think the answer is to say like, "Crimes happen." Is <laughs> to say, "No, no, no." Defund has these other ways to address crime. Maybe there's still a small there's still a small number of people who are actually traditional police detectives who are trying to track down people and solve murders and things like that. But there's also all these other things that we're going to do to try to make sure those bad things happen, like. I, I, I accept that. Like maybe the answer is we need to make sure we develop some independent international humanitarian force like the UN that actually has the, the, the power to intervene meaningfully and also isn't controlled by the United States. Like I accept all of those, those kinds of answers. I, I really do. But the like, nah, let's just see how the Holocaust plays out answers. I got to say, don't sit well with me. But I no, could be wrong. I, I'm working through it. No, I, I completely get it. And and I think you're a good person. You have a good heart. And I think that I think if we lived in a society where we were all looked out for one another, that's the ideal society. And we weren't so individual. This is my house. This is my property. And we all like lived in a community and took care of each other's kids. And like that society is just slowly and slowly deteriorated. Like I think about when I was a kid growing up and I lived, grew up on the south side of Chicago and both my parents worked. My neighbor, two doors down, like she took care of me. Like she, when me and my sister got off the bus, she had kids that were in similar age and she took care of us. And it's like, now that doesn't really seem to exist anymore. Where, where I feel like it would be acceptable for the neighbors you don't really know that well <laughs> for their kids to come over your house or send your kids over them. If it's not like a long-term relationship. Like we just don't have that society although i want that but it's not it's not the case so that i guess that's that's how i feel about about this i do want us to intervene and help one another i want us to stand up for one another as as much as possible but maybe that makes me i don't know some sort of moderate or something or pragmatist <laughs> a liberal where it's like well that's not realistic but that's i don't know that's kind of how i feel about it
Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, I appreciate you taking my call. Uh, uh, keep up the great work. Um, I'll be here listening. All right. Thanks for calling in, Shelby. Keep the faith. All right. All right, Jonathan, what's in your mind? Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. What What an awesome interview. Like, just like, I, you know, that guy always has a special place in my heart ever since he went on useful idiots and in defense of Aaron Mate called uh, uh, junk Uger. Uh, the, uh, he, he called him, uh, the young fucks, I believe it was. <laughs> People made memes out of it. But yeah, I, I kind of called in to talk about what you were, what you were discussing earlier. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave the Jewish thing alone for now. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the earlier, like, thing that you were saying kind of, um, you know, with the, the disproportionate response to, uh, the student debt thing that we were we were talking about. Obviously, you've seen I've been involved in on Twitter. Um, it, you know, again, you successfully made an accurate prediction. You said this was coming. Uh, you did uh, a great deal of, of very nuanced content on it. And it played out exactly like we were worried it would. And you saw this kind of reaction. And it strikes me that uh, you have a superpower. And that superpower does come from, I think, exactly kind of where you think it does. And I was listening, like during the the whole Ukraine thing, to a, uh, a you know a a call in actually that was in defense of you, but strangely ran at the same time as yours that Sabby did. Hmm. And her first caller uh, was a woman named Delthea, I think, who had an interesting um, thesis on, you know, it basically said what, what you said that there, she called it a circle of grace or whatever. And that there was a disproportionate reaction to a young black woman saying these things, but I would, I would say it's beyond that a little bit. It almost reminds me of that scene that you like to describe in what was it, the color purple where the lady was like, we've done everything for you people. Mm-hmm. And it really comes from that because, again, this is you are the former press secretary of a major presidential candidate. And I think a lot of these people in these kind of elite circles were thinking, oh, she'd be a good one to groom as a mouthpiece. Um, You know, before uh, you said some of the things you did, like, uh, you know, uh, the the things about Kamala Harris's health, you know, health plan or whatever. That got them coming for you and saying you'll never work in this town again. Don't and it does when you at the intercept. How did this happen again? Neoliberal, how did you end up up Survive. here? My partner in crime. I guess like we <laughs> are joined in the hit. I'm asked. Hello, hello, hi. LOL. All right. You guys you got the tag team this session. Yeah, but like it's the thing is, like, it's a superpower because when you say these things, um, they react viscerally and they, you know, they don't think it through, but they like, it catches them on their back foot. It throws them off balance and they inadvertently kind of wind up playing into our hands and having these conversations that they really don't want to have. And the side effect of it, unfortunately, is that you deal with a tremendous degree of very aggressive ostracism and harassment. 
And so you're always telling me, oh, you don't have to do this on Twitter. But I'm starting to think, yeah, we kind of all do. If we want you to keep doing what you're doing and using your superpower for good, uh, then we kind of have to. Because if there's one thing that I've learned from reading about the psychology of ostracism, it's that we're all human. Nobody is completely invulnerable to it. And, you know, that means you have to know, like, not just in your head, but you have to feel that when you're doing this stuff, that we're never going to leave you out in the middle of the ocean to drown in that. Like, when you look behind you, you need to see us getting your back. When you look to your side, you need to see us walking beside you. And when you look in front of you, you need to see a solid phalanx of us running interference on bad actors when you're doing this stuff. And it is working. Like, it is, this is now, like, all these blue checks are here elevating this conversation to the front of people's minds, and people are talking about it. And now it's not a, you know, it's not, it's not, they're not able to kind of shove this out of the discourse uh, so that it just floats out of people's minds. Like, now this is a topic of conversation, and you did that with your superpower. And that makes you a superhero. (laughs) Look, I, I really do. Like I've said to you before, Jonathan, I really do appreciate you and everybody else. Like the RBN crew has been, you know, so strong and supportive as well. Like I, it does make a difference because I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't get to me and that I don't see like ratios and that I don't have second doubts and all of those kinds of things. Not about student debt because that's my <laughs> but generally speaking in other issue areas that it doesn't it's not like unsettling to be in these situations and i've increasingly you know now i can identify what's a swarm and what's bot driven versus what seems more organic but you know in the early days especially it was disorienting to have someone like tiffany cross tell me that i was a black white supremacist and would never work in this town again and to have bakari sellers and you know all of these you know players like really coming for me and at, especially at a time when I considered myself to be a much smaller fish in the pond um, and had I, I was unemployed when they were telling me that I would never work in this town again you know it's a pretty cruel thing to say like I didn't know if I was ever going to work you know if I was going to have to go and like start being a lawyer again and do all my CLEs and see if they would make they were going to force me to take the bar again because I haven't done one in like five years you know, so, you know, I don't know. I, I do it. I just long wave me as saying that I, that I really do appreciate uh, all of you. Well, I mean, don't forget about Soledad O'Brien and, uh, you know, the, that bad take machine. Like, here's the thing. Like, one of the things that they all seem to have in common is that they are bad take machines. They, these are largely mouthpieces for elite interests and elite positions. And they are exactly the people that militantly enforce the status quo using ostracism and intimidation whenever they can. And they're particularly aggressive towards you because they perceive you to be powerful in your own way. And they think that you are a threat, which, you know, in many ways you are. But, you know, again, they react so aggressively for reasons like they there's a particular like uh you know like that woman in the color purple there's a per there's a particular there's a there's a particular indignance that how dare she 
like she has not been blessed by the hand of God to say such things to such people. And they are particularly um, worked up about it. And that is where the superpower comes in, because when that emotion floods their brain, it crowds out rational thought and they are apt to act rashly and be baited and inadvertently kind of, like I said, play into our hands and this conversation is an important one to have. Like, we are looking at this stuff, and, you know, we're seeing a distinct pattern, which you have pointed out before, uh, which is, you know, the broken promises, the $2,000 checks, the uh, saying they did things that really they didn't, you know, like the, you know, the we were talking earlier on our own call in uh, Neoliberal Tears and I about... Um, you know, the things he, he was bragging about having done. Oh, Medicare prescription drugs. It's like 10 drugs only for Medicare patients. Starts in like 2026 or something. And, you know, the broadband infrastructure thing. It's like a $30 gift card that you have to fill out 50 forms in triplicate. And it's only available to people on the second Tuesday of the month if they're transgender Nazi Eskimos. They make less than $20,000 a year. And, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. Like, it's all, it's all bathed in switch. And this thing, the way you laid it out, it's like a, like you said earlier, it's impossible not to see a pattern here and not to suspect the worst. It might have sounded conspiratorial if you said it like two years ago, right. but you are seeing a distinctive pattern here, and it's an important conversation to be having. And I don't think anybody could have stirred the pot enough to make this conversation happen without that kind of a superpower. And that is important. Look, I, I appreciate that. And look, I, like you said, I would not have said this two years ago. And we've been building to this together on this podcast for the last two years. Like, two years? No, we haven't been doing this two years. Is it 2022? Yes, two years. Yeah. Two years. And But, like, I, at every juncture, I just want to say, like, I know the bad faith and the jokes about the bad faith and all of that. But, like, honestly, I've been trying to be the goodest of faithless of persons. You know, like... Rokana, come tell me why I'm wrong about my read on what's happened with the $15 minimum wage. AOC, come explain to me why you, you know, didn't hold the line over the fight for 15. Come explain to me why you didn't do force. I'm genuinely open to being wrong about some super secret plan that uh, some long game or some threat. Just let me know. Are you being threatened? Is there something that's going to happen to you? Are they going to like, just, I might not agree with you bending the knee to the threat, but like I can, we can understand what's, what's going on in a way that's At no point have any of these people offered the alternative explanation. I am not like dogmatic. I'm not a zealot. Like I am open to the idea that I may be wrong. I have nothing to prove here. I would love to be wrong, frankly, because it's a cynical, terrible place that we're in. Leslie, <laughs> you're not wrong. You've been right this whole time. You know, it's why I think we see it in these moments, you know, and we even, Jonathan and I even took it back to force the vote because mm. everything, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But like a lot of things come back to force the vote. It of was course. things that we were... Um, that you, that we were right about and things that made them really uncomfortable. The fact that we were asking for a floor vote that wasn't choreographed, mm -hmm. that they didn't shake hands about behind the scenes that were, that would have actually made people uncomfortable. And the fact that, and I'm sorry, I mean, it's just that because he's been a character this week and I wanted to know what you thought. Um, you know, the fact that Ryan's tried to sell 
you know, a narrow Pagel exemption and a weird fight from 2018 where Jayapal, Pagel wasn't even a thing or a part of the rules package until Pelosi put it in and then mm -hmm. Jayapal asked so for all hearing, which we all celebrate every day. I know I wake up in the morning and think, thank God Jayapal got those hearings. I know she did. <laughs> um, our bestie Jayapal, who is always a villain of the, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. She, like, completely sucks. It's funny they brought up um, Ryan, though, because I was just listening to him. He interviewed AOC post-midterms over at uh, Intercepted. Deconstructed. I always get Indeed, they did. And I was listening to it um, this morning, and there was this interesting moment where Ryan brings up Hakeem Jeffries as part of the finagling. I don't remember exactly, but it's part of the finagling that screwed everybody over in New York State. And referenced him as being in line for the leadership and whether or not there were going to be consequences for that, the way that progressives would have held to pay if they were responsible for a disaster like the electoral disaster that happened in New York. And AOC kind of sidesteps the question. But when you say everything is about force the vote, everything is about force the vote. Here we are again where there's this question about whether or not. There, you know, what who is going to represent how who's going to be House leadership? Who's the next in line? Are progressives ever going to stand up against these people who, in this case, have genuinely, not even about being bashing progressives, but genuinely just did their jobs poorly, even as centrists, in terms of their jobs just being getting Democrats elected in a blue state like New York? And look, and no, look at the conservatives. They're all threatening Kevin McCarthy with everything they have. They're all right. saying withhold the donations to the yep. GOP until Senate leadership is replaced. Yep. They are going out there. We are just, we've been asking for a Marjorie Taylor Greene of the left. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and Democrats just don't want to. They want to be endorsed by Pelosi. I should add, he played like half of your Ryan Grimm interview from that Bad Faith podcast on our call-in, <laughs> just, just so you know, like, we were going over all the fine points, because, like, we were, like, we were just, like, you know, I was like, you know what, ordinarily, like, I defend Ryan from uh, attacks by people that, you know, say he's a bad guy, I don't think he's a bad guy, he has some cringe takes sometimes, but in this case... He he really kicked the ball into his own goal with this this very um, you know kind of like essentially he just handed her the microphone and let her say what she wanted with no pushback and I'm like you know what you deserve what you get guy they're yeah. gonna come after you for that and you deserve it and even yeah, look, I'm was, sorry even, yeah, even in the bad faith sure. interview he said like you know I just wish I could help people understand that the pago thing is actually a big deal what if I could explain it to them somehow like he was like musing about persuasion as if that was the issue and not what we were asking for yeah i mean look <laughs> i was actually thinking about having him back on um because i find it to be an invaluable resource to discuss um house happenings congressional happenings and um i thought he was asking some really good questions in the aoc interview even if they weren't the questions that i necessarily really want from aoc and he also interviewed um, Maurice from WFP, and that was a good interview as well. And I, I would like, once we get more information trickling in about what actually happened in midterms and what messaging prevented what outcomes where and youth vote and blah, 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 and we can say things with more certainty, I'd love to talk to him about it. But yeah, it, it does continue to be an issue that, like, you know, he gets to interview AFC. <laughs> like, he gets to be the one that asks her the questions. And, 
you know, she she very clearly sidestepped the critique. I, I was like happy that Ryan like squared in on Hakeem Hakeem Jeffries in, in leadership questions, but ASC sidestepped them and it wasn't pressed. Well, as we as we pointed out, like there is at this point, it seems very clear that there is a reason why he will talk to Ryan Grimm, but he will not talk to David Sirota, who has a reputation for asking tough questions, which is kind of ironic, because as I brought up to David Sirota on his call-in, like, it seems easier for him to get these, uh, these you know, centrist, like, neolib-type Democrats who are willing to face those kinds of questions from him than uh, people who self-identify as progressives. Which is calculated. And they they understand, I mean, even AOC's answer, Ryan asked her actually about the the warehouse wasn't uh, in my district, maybe you should look at a map tweet, which I think is iconic because Mm -hmm. it's so bad. Mm -hmm. And it's it's such a great window into like our problem with AOC. And her answer, I mean, he asked her about it, to be frank, um, you know, and the way he phrased the question, I didn't have a big of an issue with. It's just that, like Jonathan said, he let her just be a, he let himself just be a sounding board for her to say absolutely nothing, nothing about it. Like she compared it to a relationship. Like we need to ban AOC and metaphors. Like I'm done. Like at this point, it's all construction and like labor. Like, you know, what if we build the foundation? Like, please, enough. Yeah. And I, and I don't think it's helping her. Like, I don't think that, you know, there were these moments earlier in her career where she, I might even say she messed up, but she had a little, she had some, she said some things that the media got on her for. Like, I remember she said the thing about, I mean, she was right about, um, you know, uh, Israel occupying Gaza and, you know, she said some things and it was a learning experience for her, right? Like getting pushback teaches you to firm up, get your language right, be confident in the things that you're going to say, talk to some good lefty foreign policy people so you don't feel backed down off that position in the, in the future. And sometimes I think that, like, she's not she, – the only criticism she gets is bad faith from the right now and the, or the only criticism either that she'll listen to and engage with or seems to want to respond to. And it's not – I don't know. Like, I still maintain that she has a lot of talent and – could could be like really it's something transformational there was a reason why we all bought in right and it's not as though alternatives have really been coming out of the woodwork i mean there are some obviously rising stars and stuff but i don't know i still i still want her like i i want her to be great i do like i'm rooting for her i, I but it's not going to happen with her siloing herself the way she's been doing yeah, I agree with that 150%. I think we all want these people to be better. That's the point of the exercise, although I think a lot of us are certainly, uh, you know, if we haven't all, like my, like I haven't, I won't say I, I ever lose hope in anybody. Nobody is truly beyond redemption in my view. But uh, my hopes for that sort of thing happening or that she even wants it to happen is at this point, kind of in the toilet, and especially after reading that uh, that chapter in Anand's book. And by the way, you're going to have to let us know in advance when that interview is coming up, because we need to have our popcorn popped. Okay, let me, that actually reminds me, because we were had a scheduling, what did we say? I need to follow up on the email. We had said, 
Oh, this, oh, this is, is annoying. annoying. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I emailed him I emailed on October him. 30th, and he was away. Okay, let me follow up. Well, I'll follow up. Oh. oh, if you're if we're doing follow ups, like you you said, you wanted to have Clara Matei on. Yeah, we uh, supposed we... to interview her today, um, but she had to reschedule, so I'm going to interview her next Monday. Yeah, she is fabulous, and <laughs> yeah, she sent uh, yeah because uh, Grumbine interviewed her for our uh, Macro and Cheese podcast mm-hmm. that I work on the back end of that dropped last Saturday, and she was so thrilled, and she sent an email like, "This is my first podcast." And, like, it's clear to me she has no idea how much buzz there is already around this book. Mm. And she's she's going to be podcasted out before long, but she is really fabulous. And I'm, like, most of the way through that book. It is incredible. Yeah, like, I, I it's, it's a real eye-opener. I was happy a little bit about the delay because they sent me the, um, you know, the digital book over the weekend. But now I have a lot more time to go through it. So I will be interviewing her next Monday, which probably means it'll come out the following Thursday. Uh, as for Anand, I will be following up after I hang off, up off of this call. But look, Jonathan, Neoliberal Tears. I don't know how you got up here, Neoliberal Tears. I also saw somebody else pop up here. From this I don't either. Like, I want to know. Like, I, I, I want to know, are you like, are you in the Matrix? Are you like Sandra Bullock in that one 90s movie where she like hacks her way through life? I don't, I don't know what's happening here. But it's always good to speak to both of you. And it was nice to speak to you in tandem. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having us both up here at the same time. That was awesome. (laughs) All right. Keep the faith, guys. Thanks so much. All right, Amanda, what's on your mind? Hi, Brianna. How are you doing? What are you thinking about this evening? Um, Oh, I'm thinking about a lot. I'm also thinking about I shouldn't have had those two kombuchas while I was waiting here. (laughs) <laughs> but it was great conversation. So I'll just start there with the disclaimer that I've had two dis- two of those. Roger Waters. I was getting high to Roger Waters' music when you were a toddler. <laughs> so happy that you had him on and what a great conversation. I just want to highlight something that he said he did couldn't remember the case but he was talking about Steve Donziger's article in the Guardian about the Moore v Harper Supreme mm-hmm. Court case mm-hmm. and I've brought this up with you before it's mm-hmm. going to be coming in front of the Supreme Court and I really urge you to look into it as as Roger Waters did because it's kind of important it's about state legislatures getting more power over deciding how the electoral votes are are determined. So it's it's kind of an important one. And I don't need to get into it right now because this okay. has been a very long call. But I just wanted to bring it up again to, you know, put it on your, your tickler list. And, I, I appreciate that. And I just put it again in, the, in my Slack thread. If I... I, I don't want anyone to ever feel like they have nudged me too many times. I okay appreciate the nudging because there's just a lot of there's like a there's lot of stuff. There's a lot going on. Yeah, there's a ton going on. So uh, have you thought about how how we might use Colin to our advantage as a tool? And by we, I mean those of us who kind of know all the BS that's going on and are on board to like start taking some actions. I mean. I would love to see a real presidential debate 
maybe even moderated by you and a couple of other people that included not just Democrats and Republicans. That's going to be coming up in two years. And the League of Women Voters used to do more open presidential debates. I don't think it has to be nailed down to the stupid one that happens these days. Well, look, of course, the issue is the the major parties acquiescing and they don't really have any incentive to do so. I, I would look one golden, one silver lining of, you know, now that the red wave was quelled and, you know, Biden's getting a lot of credit for that. The presumption is that Biden is definitely going to run and that he's not going to have at least any establishment challengers. If that means, you know, one, one silver lining could mean that, the really fringy alternative folks, the forward party people, Green Party, you know, everyone else who's like in the picture might see it as an opportunity to have their own debate on the side since there's going to be perhaps a void created yeah. by there not being, you know, a, 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 as, as, um, as competitive a primary as we had in 2019 or because we have the same kind of dull matchup between Biden and Trump conceivably again, and people are interested in hearing about other people for that reason. So if that's the case, I would love to see if someone like the forward party would in, in whatever other candidates, the green party, PPP, who, P, uh, MPP, whomever would be willing to set something up. Cause I do think that would be deeply beneficial. I, also you know, I, would I can't love... say that I ha- have a lot of hope that uh, you're going to get Democrats and Republicans involved. Oh, no. I, I And I get that. I, in my little town where I ended up running for election before I did that, we had we had debates and it was really hard to get the incumbents to come because they were like, why mm-hmm. should we? Why should? And we did it anyway. We scheduled it. We put out the publicity. And you know what? They showed up because they knew that it was going to be obvious. Now, it's different in a small town than the Dems and the Republicans. And I, and I don't want to minimize that difference, but it can be done. And I think if you have a big enough imagination, the other project I think that would be great to, to undertake that could really become uh, movement building is is get together some musicians, either independent or big people and have them um, do their own versions and covers of the the labor tunes from the 20s and 30s i do i have been thinking a lot about how powerful music is because it could be the lyrics is all socialism and labor and workers and i mean it's a it's an opportunity yeah and i I was thinking about music and whether it's in fact less political than it used to be. I know some folks make the argument that there is tons of political music, a lot of political hip hop, but that's not what sells. And then there are kind of arguments about the fact that the record companies suppress music of a political nature and promote like gangster rap for reasons. And you know, I, I, you know, I get into all of that necessarily, but you know, when the Kanye stuff first happened and I found myself going back to listen to college dropout, I was struck by how political it was and how much at the time it resonated with my own politics, you know, as a freshman in college or whatever. And it felt very subversive and powerful. And it felt like 
I guess during the Bush era, especially, it, 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 it was meaningful. It was orienting. It made me feel like I was part of a bigger community and a team that was fighting for something. And, you know, I, I do think that we are missing that. And I don't know what that's about, but I, I like that idea, Amanda. Um, thank you, as always, for calling in. I made the note um, of the uh, Harper case. Thank you, Brianna. Keep the thank faith. Thank you so much. Keep the faith. Thomas, you seem like a new face, but maybe not. Have you called him before? Thomas, I see you're unmuted, but maybe the app is just lagging a little bit, contemplating whether or not it wants us to be in contact. Thinking about it. Pondering. Let's listen to a little Stevie. Any day, Thomas. Oh. Okay. We lost. We lost Thomas. Gary. What's on your mind? Hey, Bree, what's going on? I'm good, although I don't know what's going on with my soundboard because it is just not, it's not, the, the level on it is just not doing anything for the computer. The computer is just coming in full blast regardless of what the dial is doing. So that is a me problem, not a you problem. What's on your mind, Gary? Uh, Well, first, um, I, it was interesting that story you told uh just to shoot your old friend some bail um, from his perspective as somebody who was probably on that side of things. Um, they, we think what we're saying is so obvious and rational that we don't feel like we're trolling. Although I'm sure from the other side, it probably feels like you stop trolling me. You're just being provocative and try in, in all these like critiques of Obama. Cause I used to be that guy during the Obama mm -hmm. administration who would always talk to older black people about how much of a fraud he was Mm -hmm. And I thought I was like literally saying the sky was blue, but mm -hmm. to them, I was just like the annoying guy who they'd never wanted to have lunch with. Mm -hmm. I was just like, what's, what am I missing here? I was like, am I not getting it? Like I literally thought I wasn't doing anything that bad, but to them, they probably thought I was like literally the antichrist. Um, <laughs> so I, I get, I get that whole situation with the email correspondences and just you guys probably being on two different planets, basically. It's, it's so weird. But it's now, like, I mean, but now we're past We had a conversation about it at our 15-year reunion this year. And yeah. I, I mean, I apologize to him. And it's not because I think I was entirely wrong, but because I just see things so differently. And it may, it's, makes me sad that it got so acrimonious between us. We yeah, were very I'm, different people. He clerked for Alito. <laughs> understood. Yeah. The thing about yeah. it is it's hard to not judge people for the differences of opinions. It's hard. It's hard. I remember I used to, and I think sports helps because I remember I used to argue with a, a George Bush fan at, at track practice. And they used to be funny. It used to be like, like comedy for this, this guy to tell me about how great George Bush was and about how terrible affirmative action was me being a black student in a college on his track team. And he's like, yeah, affirmative action is bad. And, it's, you know, just because, just so if, if black people suffer, that's just kind of 
just just based on merits or whatever. And we used to have these discussions, and it used to be just funny. It'd be full of laughter, mm. and you know, he was and he was kind. It was similar in he was similar in tone to Coleman as well, where it's like mm. he's just extremely straight. This is extremely kind of like monotone, and you know, everything's very logical, and there's not a lot of emotion in there. And um, I feel like that's almost stop with your like. Oh, I apologize. I don't know. That just came out. I think I just was channeling something. You just did. Um, you just did everybody's like black nerd voice. I apologize. And, and the thing is, we're all black nerds here anyway. You know I mean? Regardless how we talk. Amen. God bless. Um, and so, like, the thing about it is, when you go through that, I think, like I said, sports helps. It's mm. hard to then like really judge people for disagreeing with you, and I think. Uh, you know, I say this all the time until we can sort of take our emotions out of it and, and sort of just, and I think that's what the first suit was talking about with regards to the identity politics. So I think the identity politics is so fraught with emotion mm. that it, it in and of itself sort of gets in the way of a legitimate conversation about principles and about policy, not just because those things don't, uh, are not relevant to race or race isn't relevant to them, but because of all the emotion attached to it sort of derails the issues, you know, and I understood where that dude was coming from because it's like, if we can figure out a way to reduce emotion, I think the conversation is is, is done a service, done a great service. Do you think there's a tension between wanting to reduce emotion and like acknowledging, like Amanda just says, like, to me, the value of music is that emotions i mean it's kind of a neutral and it can be channeled for good or for evil and you know if people can feel inspired and like a desire to overcome and a sense of solidarity through the emotions that are invoked by music that's a good thing and if people's emotions are stoked by you know transphobia or racism or you know anti-immigrant sentiment then that's a bad thing but i don't i don't know like is is the is the issue in that in the instance the first caller was talking about em, em, emotion? Am I I don't know. I'm thinking it through. Is emotion really what we're is the enemy in that scenario? Uh, well, I think that's what the the emo, the major issue is with regards to um, talking about race and including race in discussions about policy. Um, is that the reason? Because you think to yourself. Why does race, why is race a problem when, when these issues, why is identity politics such a derailing element when it comes to policy discussions? And I, I, I'm just, I guess maybe, maybe I'm throwing my interpretation of it in there, is that it's because there's a lot of emotion attached to um, self-identity. Because like race is, you know, a lot of race, especially blackness or whiteness, it's all a fiction. So, you know, when it comes to like, you know, we're all basically like racial dozo and we're all, you know, kind of, you know, living by these like you know fictions that you tell you tell ourselves we we essentialize ourselves you know in some most most of us in very self-affirming ways but um it's like you know and like when you're trying to like live in this self-delusion and this essentialist uh kind of reductive you know way of, of of existing in the world like sometimes that kind of gets in the way of just sort of looking at things objectively and, and, and from a principle standpoint, it was, it was like when you're trying to look at things through the quote unquote, the black lens, it's a, it's a fictitious lens. It doesn't exist, but you know, you fabricate a, 
a meaning um, for something that is really just sort of a uh, a, a distraction or a, a, a kind of obscuring element. Um, like I said, it can distort the way you approach these types of discussions, you know. Gary, I gotta say, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about anything. But I, I, I struggle with that characterization. I struggle with the characterization. I mean, I was ta- talking about this with um, Chatterton, um, Thomas Chatterton Williams. I struggle, like, with the characterization of race as, like, a figment and, and those, those, you know, that kind of a that kind of a thing because whatever whatever kind of like feel good sociological explanation that we all get about race being a social construct and you know we all share more DNA and blah 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 and all of the things like I get it from like a scientific perspective but we don't live in science race is a social construct guess what society matters <laughs> we all live in a society so like there's something like you know my race is relevant to me me having my critique of identity politics does not make me indifferent to my own race, what my race means about what my experience living, moving through the world is. Just like my class privilege and every other kind of thing affects my experience of life. And it seems, like I understand, the reason I had the response that I had to the first caller was that like, my critique of identity politics does not mean that I don't have empathy for and understand why people don't like to have identity categories that are meaningful to, to them dismissed. If someone were to tell me that it doesn't matter that I'm a woman, like how I live, like, oh, your gender doesn't matter. Your sex doesn't matter. I'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? We just got abortion rights stripped away. That has direct implications for me in my life. My risks of being raped, sexually assaulted in my life are dramatically higher because I'm a woman. My risk of having an eating disorder, my risk of a million things, you know, uh, you know, you know, various illnesses, et cetera, fibroids, polycystic ovarian cancer, the cost of living because I have to get my eyebrows plucked and all this shit. Like it, it, it affects all of these aspects of my life. Every time I meet someone, they look at me and react to me because they perceive me as female. And so when in the same, this is obviously true of race in for, you know, in, in different ways. So I don't know, like I, I don't necessarily want to be in a position of telling people that their identity doesn't matter. And if my goal is to get them to realize how some of our shared interests can advance our projects collectively, politically, I don't know that it's better to do so by diminishing things, something that they already value, as opposed to illustrating why it is the things that they value can be benefited and furthered by thinking about what we share collectively. Does that, does that, I don't know, does that make sense? I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's important to separate the, the, the value. Like I said, it's a self-identity, it's self-identification. It's, it has a value to the individual, but it's different from sort of connecting that, uh, well, a, connecting whatever meaning it has to them on an individual level to some more, some larger, more objective truth. And I think it's, it's okay to have your own individual, you know, self-perception, you know, that's racialized, but it's another thing to sort of try to use that as a filter through which you across those types of identities. But it's not, it's not an individual self-perception. Come on. I'm not, I didn't wake up and decide I was black. <laughs> okay? what, what, what blackness means to you 
is 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 not no 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 but what's relevant in society is not what blackness means to me it's what my blackness means to everybody i encounter who perceives me as black and what they're taught my blackness means through our society but since that varies then no unfortunately it doesn't vary and that's why we have stereotypes and mass prejudices regretfully we all know what it means to be black in the public eye we all know what it means to be female in the public eye we all know what it means to be you know i was gonna say latina but like let's break it down further mexican in the public eye cuban in the public eye gay in the public eye trans in the public eye we all know what the stereotypes are and it affects how we 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 meet little babies and if it has a pink bow on its head versus a blue t-shirt on we cool and we touch it gently versus punching it in the arm and saying hey big fella like, like, let's not act daft here. Like, it's all, it makes us all feel warm and gooey to say, oh, this is a country, social construct, nothing matters. But that's bullshit. It all matters. And it's not because we decided it matters. And that's what it can feel like kind of gaslighty about it. Like, your po- politicians exploit identity categories to get you to forget the ways in which we are all similar. But that exploitation is real, and the politicization of our differences is real. And telling people like like that shouldn't matter to them politically, when it's all that has mattered politically historically, does feel like a kind of gaslight. I, see, I think it's just putting it in perspective. Like I said, if if a schizophrenic person sees me as a deer and shoots me with an arrow, it doesn't mean I'm a deer. But I, it, it matters that okay, he, but they thought you were a deer. So your self conception, it doesn't matter. You're dead, homie. Like, <laughs> like that's that is my point. It's not about self conception. It is it is about how we're perceived. And so that's why it's, it's I can sit here and say oh, it's warm and gooey and gushing, and we're all human beings. But all being all human beings doesn't prevent you from getting pulled over at night because you're driving a, a car that's deemed too nice for your skin color. What's the Audrey Lord uh, quote that was popularizing best man about defining yourself for yourself? Or you'd be crushing other people's perceptions of you. I don't understand what that has to do with anything. Is defining myself for myself going to keep me from getting redlined? Is defining myself for myself going to you know, keep, keep me from getting a harsher sentence for doing the same crime as a white person? Is defining myself for myself going to make me less vulnerable to sexual assault as a woman? I just decide, hey, I'm a woman, hear me roar, and all of the things that, you know, like, uh, our, our women are subjected to unequal pay and all of that just magically doesn't happen to me. I understand. I mean, like I said, point taken. Point taken. <laughs> you know what I mean? Point so I, I, I don't know. Like, that, that's why, like, I, look, I don't, I don't think I had to defend my record on critiquing the weaponization of identity politics. But I don't want to have created a monster or contributed to a monster being created on the left with that critique because I, I race matters to people. And frankly, my race and my identity matters to me. I have a culture that I am proud of and that is bound up in race. And I enjoy being a woman and my gender identity is important to me and part of who I am as a human being. Just like my professional background and my class status and my more niche experiences all add up to who I am. And I, I do think that we can we need to realize that like when we're when we're coming up with language about how to approach people, which is what the first caller was talking about, what we ended up talking about, I, you're, we're not going to be able to disappear people's investment in who they are. I wouldn't go to Kansas and lobby for some policy 
and say it doesn't matter that you're from Kansas. Fuck Kansas. You know, everyone would understand that's political suicide. Look what happened to Dr. Oz, LOL. We accept that other people's national identities, state identities, professional identities matter to them, but we're all like, oh, race is a social construct. Okay, your employment is a social construct. You're not really an accountant. <laughs> you decided to be an accountant. Like, what, what are we even talking about anymore, you know? Like, people are invested in stuff. And maybe there's like a longer political project to get people to reorient their priorities toward other kinds of, you know, class status or other kinds of things. But I don't think that you get them to shift in that direction by using language that can come off as dismissive of the commitments that they've already made. Yeah. I, so I, I, I hear the tension you have between um, having a, a certain value of a certain identity as or certain aspects of your life that you identify um, with this category, but also criticizing whenever that categorization is used to reduce or infantilize, right? And and weaponize, and, and I think right. that's and I weaponizing that. identity politics is the issue, not identity. Yeah. Identity is not the enemy; it's the yeah. weaponization of identity politics. Yeah, and I think that that right there, and as I segue, because this is my real axis, my whole agenda, really, in this call, is to to get. To, to one acknowledge the red pilling of Brianna Joy Gray, I hear it a lot. I've been listening to you over the last few weeks. I I I I, un, I know the red pill has been taken. It's just a slow acting red pill. And I think what needs to happen in this space, I think probably one of the biggest moments in this space, probably ever, would be the interview, the sit down in person interview with you. And Candace Owens, I'm telling you, it'd be monstrous. It could be even on, you could do a pay per view. It, it'd probably it's like must see TV. I, that's, I just want to lobby for that. I think you guys <laughs> would be a lot more simpatico than you think you are, and a lot of people listening think you are. I'm, I'm hearing you, and I'm like, well, hold on. Bree is super red pill. Like she's not fully. What do you What do you like, mean by that? Like I said, like. I feel like you're seeing a lot of the the ways that identity policy being politics is being weaponized. Even though obviously we just had a discussion about how the the, the ability to self-identify and, and sort of kind of define that identity. Even though you, I feel like you acknowledge that you're kind of defining the identity um, and not allowing the identity to be refi- defined for you, which I think maybe a little bit more legitimate because if you are having the identity to find for you i think that's when that's kind of where you run into problems and i think that's the same critic that well, i don't understand what does it mean for my identity but if, like so i don't we'll know this. If, you, if you if you if you if you kind of operate under the perspective that you are a black person and blackness has meaning then who's who's creating that meaning who's creating what you are who you are in this world like uh, it's obviously many people to... are are pulling and pushing and trying to define what that means. Of course, for some yeah. people it means being stupid. For some people it means being violent. For some people it means being poor. For me, yeah. it means a whole other host of things that are b- bound up in my cultural identity. Someone says my culture is my race. I'm sorry, that's bullshit. Like yeah. my culture stems from my culture doesn't exist. My my ethnic group only exist because we were brought as chattel slaves and classified as other because of our physiognomic appearance. 
and the justification of our treatment was based on how we looked and race was invented as a category to justify that whole process. So to pretend like my race has nothing to do with my culture, that's, uh, that's bullshit. And, you know, look, black Americans have a, a special relationship with this because we, we have been in a unique position, a relatively unique position of never being the majority of never having our own country, of never having our own like pure self-determination. And I think we have resisted white hegemony more than any other group in this country. We have set our own standards for attractiveness. Not, not, it's not imperfect. People, plenty of people have succumbed. White supremacy is a son of a bitch. But like we are like almost defiantly rejecting of white hegemony. Even to the extent to sometimes we reject things that aren't so bad because of their association with with white power structures, and frankly, like to the, the, our we have defined ourselves in some ways as oppositional. And like I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is something that I have to acknowledge that I'm invested in, and frankly, proud of as a Black American. I'm 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 proud of our ability to self-define in this context, even if it is in a kind of re- reactionary way. Yeah. So something I, obviously that, that I think has been a theme as well that you're sort of kind of opening up to uh, as, as being a member of, quote unquote, the left. And this is something I've always criticized, so-called like leftists. And, and I, I mean, you, obviously, this is like shorthand, but like white liberals. See, I'm, I just racialized. But um, white liberals is that black black people are, aren't good for anything but a cosign. Right. And I think when you see a lot of the backlash, when you sort of or more heterodox, you realize that the backlash to heterodox people doesn't mean that the people who are receiving the black backlash are bad. It just means literally that a lot of times voices like yours and voices like Candace Owens are only good when they're co-signing what the mainstream liberal is prescribing. And when they don't, then in your case, you know, you're going to get you're going to get severely last in Candace's case. She's a full blown Nazi, you know, cause she's gone. She's pretty much, you know, she's, she's gone where you're going, which is like these, no, these democratic. Absolutely liberals. not. I'm not going what? anywhere where Candace Owens is going. Oh my God. Really? I was so optimistic. I thought, like, no, I have no interest do... in Candace Owens's political project. Candace Owens spends a lot of time doing videos about how Kim Kardashian is a slut. And how trans people are inhuman, and well, you know how our don't, kids don't are being taught that. about per, uh, groomed to be perverts and all of this stuff that has nothing to do with anything about helping people and making the world better. And I have no interest in any of that. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, and that's not an exaggeration. I watch. I watch her videos. I think her production team is terrific. I would <laughs> love a, a set that looks like hers. I think that she's smart. I think she, she's beautiful. But I think that she is dead fucking wrong. And, and I, I have no interest have in her political project. I think Sorry? you guys would have a great conversation. That might I be true. But there is nothing that's persuadable or interesting or compelling to me about what her beliefs are. So, and I, there's plenty of people who we can have interesting conversations with. But there is no directional push toward anything that Candace Owens believes, except for occasionally she wears a top that I think is pretty cute. Getting off the Democratic plantation. What does that right mean? Here. It's like that's like saying no. If somebody's like, um, you know, it's it's bad. It's ba- having cancer sucks. 
and we can agree on that. But one person just wants to throw people with cancer in a meat grinder so they don't have cancer anymore, and one person wants to get the medical treatment. Those are not the same things. Uh, <laughs> just because you both okay. agree that cancer is bad does not mean your solutions to that problem are the same or of equal value. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, I mean? I, but the thing is, like, okay, so she said, okay, Trump is the is the solution, but I'm like, well, who's the third party that she can? Who's the third party alternative? Because it's like if saying if Trump's not the solution, then do you just run back to end up drum, running back to the squad? You know what I mean? Because it's like no. Yeah. So who do you go to? You know, it's like yes, third party solution. Yeah, I mean, and that it'd be nice, but you you know you can't monetize a third party right now. If I'm being honest, that's not. Really I'm not trying to monetize anything. I'm not trying to get my husband to buy parlor and make yeah. money off of Kanye West. I'm just trying to help people figure out how to organize in a way that can actually lead to good political outcomes. Uh, again, I, <laughs> I, I hope I. I I hope that's on the horizon, you know what I mean? But, like, you know my critiques to the left, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, you already know my critiques. I've already gone over them. Like, you guys right. said, you know. Well, look, so Gary, I always appreciate hearing from you. I got to move on because we're right. at three hours already and the, he was long. I'd like to get a couple more people in here, but I appreciate you calling in. All right, schedule that interview with Candace, though. <laughs> All right, take care, All Gary. Right. Keep God. the faith. God bless. What's in your mind tonight, Matthew? Are you with us, Matthew? All right, I'm gonna push on. I know. I know. Sucks, I'm. But I'm. Just... Oh, oh, oh! Shit! Sorry. Oh, shit! Sorry. I'd already pressed the next. I'll come back to you, Matthew. What's on your mind, Cormac? Get back in the queue, Matthew. I'm sorry. Cormac, are you with us? Now I feel like I can't be impatient because I would have just did to Matthew. All right. I don't know what's going on here. I'm pulling Matthew back up. What's on your mind, Matthew? No, that's all right. It's understandable. I was a little bit distracted. It's been a long call. But, um, well, what's not to talk about these days? Um, seems to be focused on the identity politics, which I found a little confusing given, given the rot watch. <laughs> Water Rogers, and that's uh, the Roger Waters interview. Um, I have so much to on my mind about this. One thing is America is Hitler. Uh, that came up earlier. I can't say I disagree with it entirely, but it's just a different kind of uh, totalitarianism. It's not the geographical kind necessarily. It seems more of a economic motivation for our Hitlerism, I suppose, if we want to term it so ugly. Um, would you agree with that? Is it more of that we're just a bully for the rest of the economic globalists and less of a actual geographic take you over and, you know, the old school imperialism, I suppose. I don't, I, I don't know, guys. I, I am not comfortable today saying that the Holocaust is equivalent to, like, I'm just not, like, I understand the arguments can be made. I'm not going to say it. I, I'm not comfortable saying it. I'm not. I think that there are, there are things that the nature of them is discrete 
and horrific in a way that is worth treating them differently and understanding them differently. And I am not in a place where I'm willing to wave away. Like if you want to say, okay, the, the Holocaust happens again, then there needs to be an international resource to handle it, that there needs to be, you know, metrics in place to judge whether or not it is in fact a Holocaust or just another justification, justification of the war, that it shouldn't be the United States, but it should be this other independent organization, that there should be a people's movement of armed vigilantes that just arm themselves up from random countries and go and fight to, you know, kill the Nazi equivalent. Like I accept all of those things, but I'm, I'm, I, I understand this is an unsatisfactory answer for everybody, but I think I'm 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 not going to lose my humanity to make some point about American imperialism. Like I understand the point today. I'm not I'm not comfortable saying what you guys obviously want me to say. But I respect your difference of opinion. Oh well, I'm not sure what I want you to say either. Frankly, I I feel like what America's role is could be even more nefarious than Nazi Germany. To be perfectly honest. Because it is a little behind the scenes. It, like I said, it's not as overt as, hey, we're going to invade Poland. We invade them via CIA. We invade them via the o- o- taking over of Ukraine. It's not the Poland part that I'm tripping up on. It's the putting six million Jewish people in gas chambers part that I'm tripped up on. Well, no. And then that honestly goes to my point. I mean, can you say, I mean, I don't want to evoke another <laughs> caller you had such an issue with, but the the quote unquote slavery of capitalism uh, that we are importing all over the globe via our military. Is that not as bad as, you know, sucking the life out of people, diminishing actual democracy and political movements, um, hurting people, um, diminishing family. I mean, go all over the map. Think as nuanced and as, as atomized as you would like that it is hurting people in the grand scheme, I know it's not the same as putting people in gas chamber It is not chattel slavery. That is not a comparison I'm trying to make at all. I'm just saying that's why it makes it more nefarious that this is like the slow blood sucking of most people over the planet uh, because of America's military might. And the fact that we are pushing this globalized capitalist one world order thing. I mean, this is not even the argument I don't want it to go down. I was just, I just trying to make understand it. What that has to do with, the scenario is something that isn't us. Like no one is arguing that America should do imperialism. All of the things that are being alleged of America are true and it shouldn't happen. The question is what happens when something that isn't our doing, like the actual World War II scenario, the the, the imperial power invading and, and doing a genocide, what happens in that scenario? And if you want, if you if you believe that it's too much of a risk that America is going to exploit that to do imperialism, and we shouldn't get involved, I completely accept that answer, and I think it's worth chewing on. But like, I think that everyone's kind of sidestepping around that. If if just say it, just say I think you know it was horrible what the Nazis were doing to the Jews, but like it wasn't our business. Just say it, and then we'll like well, le- like we'll it- let that hang in the air for a second and see how we feel about it. Isn't that what what uh, Roger was saying that was so uncomfortable is that's what Putin is doing. He's doing the old world imperialism no. and we're kind of, no, no, I no. I'm, I'm sorry. Like it matters. The difference of genociding millions of people matters. <laughs> like it is not just no. like, oh, it's a war at all wars. No, no, the no, same, no. But the Holocaust it, was something different. No, no, Brianna, you're bringing in the Holocaust. I'm not. I'm just bringing in the general idea of old school imperialism like we're going to take over the whole hitler idea was mainly because he was attacking poland and like his imperial ambitions for germany not the actual racism 
and the identitarian politics that the Nazis employed. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm just talking about the general national uh, fervor for imperialism. And that that seems to me what Putin is doing, which, by the way, seems to bring up all those uncomfortable questions that America should be considering. What we did to Ukraine to undermine their own democracy and how that is different. I don't don't have any issue with that. There's no argument there. I completely agree about that. that, Yeah, and I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we got a little sidetracked. I think we, I started off, uh, maybe I made it a poor argument and uh, which is it's late and I've, I've had more than a few kombuchas, <laughs> uh, but I'm trying to enjoy these conversations, which I have, but I'm just, I was trying to cut it, uh, maybe split hairs with what America actually is. Are we really that Nazi Germany or are we something a little more nefarious, which, uh, which by the way, because that we, possibly are that nefarious power globally, we can't afford these identitarian divides that has, um, is the overarching shadow of this conversation tonight, it seems to me. Um, I commented earlier that whenever I need to hear why the left will never be united, and this might frustrate you, but I tune into your show and I hear, I hear too much. It's like, why, why are we so stuck on this or that thing, which can be important. I'm not saying skin color hasn't had a ugly history in our nation, but ultimately when it comes to poverty, feeding your children, putting shelter over your head, those things have to outweigh because in a con- very conservative mindset, it, there's more merit to those. Uh, oh my God. Guys, you can just say, hi, I want to help you with your anti-poverty program and not talk about yes. race. You can just yeah. t- go up to a black person and say, let me help. But if you guys keep opening your mouths and saying, oh, I think we're talking about too much about race, you've got me not wanting to be involved with you. That's not, it's like so toxic. If, if you were standing there wearing a striped shirt and I'm like, and you're like starving to death and I come to you and say, hey, I, I really think too many people are wearing striped shirts. Like, honestly, I don't know what this whole striped shirt business is about, but like, if you can take off your striped shirt and put it to the side, I'll help you eat. Like, why would you do that? If, just I'm ignore not, it. I wouldn't require you to do that, period. I'm not requiring you, you know, to like, disown but, your but blackness, you guys are Brianna, saying, not... like, But you guys keep saying, like, I, we're talking. When, when, what, what is talking about race too much? What, what, like, you want people to never talk about race or what? It's a condition of what? Like, never, what's your no, plan yeah. to, to ask people to talk about race less? As part from, apart from going up to them and saying, hey, I'm really uncomfortable with how much you're bringing up this thing that obviously means a lot to you, which is why you're bringing it up all the time. Like what, what is the end game here? What is it? What are you actually describing here? I'm describing a desire to actually pursue policy. You can even base then that pursue off. Pursue it. Pursue it. But okay. you, don't need, you don't need to bring up race. I My- promise you white people, like, let's listen to me. Listen to me. You guys have got to stop. This is, this is, the, this is why you guys got the Bernie bro shit in the first place. Okay. And I spent a lot of time pushing back against this shit, but like you are not making it easy when you guys say things like this. Just go about your business. Don't bring up race. If you don't want to talk about race, if you think race is divisive, don't bring it up. Don't bring it up. You probably shouldn't it, bring it up anyway. It's none of your no, business. Fair enough. No, no, that's fair. But, but it but will you be. You cannot be sitting around in like groups and like your DSA chapter or whatever talking about how like mm. race is an obstacle to the left's blah, blah, blah. Like that kind of stuff gets out. <laughs> Those articles get written and it looks really bad. Oh, I'm even more problematic than anything DSA. I'm 
probably one of the more conservative listeners you have, to be honest, because I, I, I voluntarily offer myself up as a centrist, which I would love if we could divorce centrism, centrism from moderate moderatism or being a moderate, because that's not what I am whatsoever. My answer to reparations would be to decommodify housing, to offer universal health care to uh I, now, granted, I would offer and I'm OK with the um, forgiveness of student debt. However, I am more of the Sagarite uh, from breaking points as far as we need to fix the uh, broken university system before we start offering freebies for people who go to higher education. So, I mean, my policies might be lean more left. My my uh, culture might lean more right. I would love to nothing more than to not talk about race. Frankly, I would love it because I don't think it's a real thing necessarily. I think it was constructed by racists and white supremacists oh, and it, it, it totally affected our, I mean, okay. Look, I'm sitting here and I'm black and it's a real thing to me and I'm the it, most sympathetic audience you're going to get. So I'm just letting you know it's it, offensive for you to tell me something that has like had a, such a huge impact on my entire I life know, experience is not real. I know. I know. I, I meant, and when I say it's not real, Bria, I know it's, I know it's real to you and it's real to me, frankly, in the skin, in the, uh, skin depth part of it, but it's not real when it comes to the actual science of it. Right. And that's really what I, <laughs> are we, but I'm I, sorry, I care, are you looking at I my care. cells in a Petri dish? Or are we talking no, about society no, no, and no. how to design our society? There's the two different things. Let's get nuanced. And I, I appreciate that. And I know those are, <laughs> you guys, you guys, like, what? I don't know what kind I of sociology, know. like, obviously, I agree with the right that liberal colleges have fucked people's brains up because people cannot think for themselves. Like, you guys, like, I understand we all sat there in sociology one on one and someone parroted at us that race is a social construct and it made us feel very high and mighty. And like we were above all of the muck and the problems. But like, like, come down to earth. Like some can, white can man is going to look at me and my three? black face and tell me that he doesn't see race and that race isn't real. Come on, that's bullshit. Come on. Can, I, can we embrace? Is it impossible to think those two things at the same time, though? Yes. To me, yes. I'm black. I don't think it's okay. a compliment for you to pretend that I'm not black or that race isn't real or that it hasn't affected well, my well, life. Well, I, I would. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend the colorblind thing is silly. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend you're not black. And I'm also. I also understand that that has a context and a meaning within American history. I'm not totally devaluing your emotions and your take, Bree. I'm just saying, ultimately, it's one thing we can hold in the back of our mind that it's not truly important if we're going to build a coalition, if we're going to build towards the future. But, but this, I under- this is what I, you guys are all missing, Matthew. It is important today. It is affecting okay. people's lives today. And there I are criminal justice outcomes that, that are different today because That's of people's what- races. Fair enough. And for you My, to say it shouldn't matter for people's political decision making is to ignore that truth. Let's let's try another tactic here. If if I pose to you that that is my political end game as to where race won't mean anything and I will enact every policy I can possibly enact to get to the end point where it doesn't mean what it means today, would you be curious or at least yes, but i don't believe I, I i know with all due respect i don't believe you because what all of y'all <laughs> all of this you people have been saying is well what the real issue is is anti-poverty and what the real issue is it's medicare for all and while i completely agree that those are the policies best calculated to 
address the biggest harms that are affecting the most marginalized people and to close the racial wealth gap and all of those kinds of things. I would never presume to look in someone's face and tell them what the real issue is without specifying that part of the reason why I prioritize those things is precisely because there are racial differences that are, are, are compounding the problems that they're facing. I'm not going to look at a Latino in a, in a country where Latinos are the most underinsured population that we have. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, race, ethnic background, is completely immaterial to the healthcare, these healthcare concerns. When black pe- people's life expectancy is like 65 or whatever the hell it is, I'm not going to sit here and say that race is immaterial to those kind of healthcare concerns. Just like I'm not going to sit here and say when you control for class and the life expectancy is also low for poor people by like 10 years, that that's not a real thing. And we would never presume to say that class isn't real because it's a social construct. Of course class is a social construct. No, it's not intrinsic. It's not in the microscope. It's not scientific. No, we I, understand no. that it's real and that that's the core of our political focus as leftists. Yeah. And, well, I'm not even a leftist and I can admit to those things. I mean, I'll, I'll sit there and tell you. I'm, so I feel like maybe I got lumped in a little too quickly and I'm not saying okay. you're. Yeah. yeah. I'm, <laughs> I know you're you're steering towards the good faith arguments. I'm just saying that I wouldn't deny you the meaning. Uh, like I said, I'm, I love history. And so, well, I, I, I claim to. And I, as much as I read and try to ingest on, on these topics, it's, you, you can't come away without an understanding that race, whatever meaning it's had over time, has clearly played into the very current reality that people are living under. And so I don't want to d- deny that reality. That is not my... That is not my goal in saying that race doesn't matter. It, it, it's just saying that it's 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 a less of a real thing than we want to admit. However, anyways, I'm just going to I'm going to circle around and, and talk in circles. We're not going to agree on this, I suppose. But ultimately, it's not it's not some nefarious thing I'm trying to offer to you. I'm, I'm offering a way out. And I do believe, like Coleman, um, that a colorblind society is probably going to be a healthier society than one that can be divided. That's my problem is we, we will always be divided if we can be divided on this line by people who don't have a working class interest at heart, who would love to see Should us Should we divided. get rid of gender? Should we get rid of sex? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> Should we abolish all pronouns and like not acknowledge any, any, any chosen identities of any kind? No, I actually no. So no, and that, this applies to race as well. I, what is more a identity woman? is the better. <laughs> well, what is a woman? Well, I have my like, answer to that, I mean, the, the, but to me, it's not interesting. I, I frankly, I find it. I find most of the identity stuff uninteresting. If you want to identify as whatever you want to identify, even if it's not doesn't match up to my eyes or what I what I might perceive you as initially. I'm willing to go, hey, this is a person, this is how they want to identify, and as long as we're working in a similar direction, or at least you're a beneficial member of society, or by the way, I will help you if you're not, if you want to just help your community, help your family, help your tribe, whatever part you're interested in, I want to maximize everyone as much as possible. That is my goal. And however you identify along the way is very uninteresting to me, because frankly, if unless you're in my family or my tribe and we can talk about it, then it's like, what influence do I really have? I just want to empower as many people as possible to do what they can for the people around them. And that's really, that's my politics. That's why I consider a centrist politics, but maybe I'm a nut. 
No, it's not. It's not that you're in that. I just, I just, I need everyone to interrogate why their impulse with respect to race is to say we'll be better when we get past it. And the same impulse doesn't seem to apply to gender or any other of the banal differences that exist between us. I just want everyone just to sit with that and interrogate that. Well, why they want okay. to get past race. But no, we're not necessarily going to talk about it right now because we're way over time and I got to wake up in the morning. But everyone just sit with that and think about that and we can revisit it in a later episode. But I appreciate your willingness to spar with me. Um, All right, Bria, keep the faith. I really appreciate the show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you too. You made for, I think, a really interesting little segment here, Matthew. All right, Trek, what's on your mind tonight? I'm going to give it a beat because apparently, apparently, this just takes a second. What's on your mind, Trek? I believe that this can, I believe that this can happen. I believe that we can, we can get this happening. I believe in us, Trek. I believe that the gods of Colin will smile down on us and allow you to be heard. I believe, Trek, I believe. But, you know, sometimes you have misplaced beliefs. (laughs) Sometimes if you believe it, you can't achieve it. (laughs) All right, I'm going to go to McCormick because he got nexted earlier. Uh, sorry, just Cormac. How are you doing, Cormac? Yeah. Hey, Bree. I'm doing great. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. What's on your mind? It's good. Um, I'm Cormac, by the way. But um, Cormac. Yeah. I, I I really appreciate what you do, Bree. And um, I don't know how you how you stay sane all the time, but I'm really thankful for for the work you do. And just to just keep your head up and keep doing what you're doing, we real really appreciate it. Thank you, Cormac. Did you have um, a thought about the? topics today or the episode or anything like that yes well i have a thing that i've been like trying to um get to a couple times but i'm very uh curious about the future of our country and and the ideologies that uh resonate with the american people versus uh what we're actually seeing in elected office and i was reading this book called uh, evil geniuses that really discussed the the shift um that occurred in the country uh, away from Keynesian economics and the New Deal uh, towards uh, the corporate, the, the neoliberal corporatism that was slowly trickling in um, and through the 70s and was really fully embraced uh, in the 80s and 90s. And I think arguably we're still kind of in that era. And a lot of other uh, voices on the left think that they're saying, oh, neoliberalism is dead or it's about to die and we're going to head into something else, hopefully something much better. And I'm not saying this in a a doomer way but more just in a i guess strategic way that i don't think that things are naturally going to just evolve in the way we want if we just let it be i think there needs to be an organized effort to uh bring people on board and move both the voters and elected officials um in a more um populist direction not just in terms of rhetoric but in terms of what we actually are demanding from the elected officials and what they're actually delivering for us um and so like i like in um so there was a huge you know, you know about the powell memo you've talked about that and how corporations mm-hmm. were saying like in 71 they're like oh shit we've gone in such a progressive 
pro-worker direction. We need to change course. And so all through the 70s, they were, they were playing the long game and slowly trying to move the minds of the American people, of politicians. You know, they, they do up all these think tanks, all these propaganda machines. And that still, I think, is very much entrenched in older Americans. A lot of those talking points, a lot of those thoughts. And I'm not cynical, but I have hope. But I think there needs to be work to be done. I think we think we're just going to at least, you know, 20, the 2018 model, we're just going to prime everyone and just keep knocking down doors. It's, it's a lot harder uh, done than actually said. And, and I think that instead of trying to push these boulders up, up a hill, I think we should try to actually move people's minds and, and try to inform people about the New Deal, about the history of this country, about antitrust at the turn of the century and 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 that whole and the shift that occurred at the, at the end of the 20th century and, and, and really getting people on board with that. Um, so it's a lot to think about. But I, I just know in um, 1964, Barry Goldwater ran in a very pro-corporate kind of far right wing direction. He was rejected soundly by the American people overwhelmingly. And so he didn't win the election of 64, but he kind of went on to win the election of 1980 because they did the work. They 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 and they moved people's minds and made unpopular ideas more tenable to a lot of Americans. And mm-hmm. um, I, th- I think that that needs to be that's not I think we can't just think that this is just going to be corrected because now we have Republicans saying populist rhetoric and, you know, Joe Biden does a couple of good tweaks. Like, I think there needs to be we need to really build the bridge and and bring people um, onto our side and really explain to them and 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 inform them. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. And how do we how do we get people there, not just in terms of how they vote, but what they believe in and what they're demanding from their officials? Yeah, I think that's completely right. And it's a real part of the problem with these long election seasons and stuff is that all of the messaging is so candidate focused and not at all about teaching, you know, reframing issues outside of an electoral context where people I think are understandably distrustful because it just feels about vote grabbing, like it's about vote grabbing. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I remember during the Bernie campaign, like there's a, there's a conversation that needs to be had about MMT and it cannot be on the next Bernie to explain MMT to the American public in the context of an election cycle. There needs to be public education about inflation, the causes of it, you know, mm-hmm. what can be done about it, et cetera. So we're not mm-hmm. in a situation where we feel like Republicans can just say it's whoever's in charge is mm-hmm. fault, uh, you know, that's driving inflation without people having a more sophisticated understanding of what's going on. Sophisticated mm-hmm. isn't the right word, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like what I was saying earlier about there needing to be an affirmative case being made about the Democrats' plan to address crime and fentanyl and things like that. If you're only bringing it up because Republicans brought it up first, you're in a defensive posture and you're going to pull a Kathy Hochul and just basically mm-hmm. lean right and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to def- I'm going to fund the police harder. We do what Stacey mm-hmm. Abrams did. And you're going to just seem like a Republican light instead of someone who has your own plan about how to address crime because it's something you genuinely care about. But you have a left solution to as opposed to someone who's just responding to attacks from the right and mm-hmm. on and on and on. So I think that you're completely right to identify that that kind of public education project has to happen, has to happen in a concerted way with money behind it. And it Mm -hmm. has to happen in a concerted way with money behind it outside the context of an election cycle. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. even our liberal media and some of the left media, I think is so afraid of its shadow that even outside of an electoral context, when there's nothing to lose, they will not have a conversation about what a left response to policing means. They will have Mm -hmm. endless conversations about how they don't like the words to fund but they spend zero energy actually explaining what to fund could look like in terms of 
lowering crime and protecting people more than just throwing more money at police budgets. And so there's a void that's completely mm-hmm. filled by the right and dominated by the right. So I think you're spot on. Mm-hmm. And and my my thought is like I I think that because this these a lot of these talking points were really entrenched in older Americans so deeply. I think there's a lot of good well-meaning people that just they they've been stuck in the mindset. I think they need to be they need they need to be educated. I mean, you you were mentioning policing, but also just with like inflation and economics. Um, like a lot of people think that what's good morally is the is a, a, the inverse of what is good for our economy, so-called, or what's going to create jobs and whatnot. And I think that a lot of people think, you know, if you're centrist, center left, oh, you have to have some social programs. You need to have some degree of spending, but not too much because it's, you know, it's bad for the economy. You don't want to overregulate the companies because then, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're going to create jobs and the wealth is going to trickle down. And I think people, people really uh, believe that, including a lot of moderate Democrats, I think you should explain to them, you know, when we were in this Keynesian economic style, we had the largest growth. I think in the 1950s, we had the largest GDP growth of, of, of the century. And I think, uh, you know, you had Eisenhower, who was a Republican, who had the marginal tax rate at 91 percent. And they were they were. And, and then, you know, in the 60s, we had we had, you know, government spending spending to create well, these social programs that lifted people out of poverty, you know, lift us out of the Great Depression in the 30s. And I think people genuinely have forgotten that they genuinely don't know mm-hmm. that. And even, you know, educated people, they really have, they've, it's been washed away and they don't know that. And they, 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 they came up in that era of Reagan and they believe spending bad, government bad, unions bad. It has been so drilled into them. Yes, there's been some green shoots lately. There's been some promising, promising things happening. We have the new generations, but I think people genuinely don't know that what is good for the people and it's also what's good for the economy. What what gets what you know what what helps strength, strengthens our country also involves lifting up the, the 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 poorest of us, helping people, helping people have opportunities. You know, fighting for workers' rights and having these programs that that's actually good for our country. And I think that needs to be set straight. And I think as long as we kind of just think, oh well, you know, we're in this entering this populist era and it's all going to work itself out. No, we have to do the work. We have to we have to. Um, uh, you know, we have to create that for we have to bring, move people's minds and bring them bring them to the table with us and, and help people help it explain people uh, uh, these these economic issues in a way they, they understand and to counter the talking points that they've been fed for 40, 50 years. Yeah, I mean, people don't understand like Republicans get away with claiming like rich people pay more taxes than poor people you know, like they don't understand tax brackets. People mm-hmm. think that if you have like a 90% tax bracket, that means 90% of your earnings are being taxed as opposed to 90% over a certain amount. People don't understand that, you know, rich people aren't paying their share into social security, that there's an income cap over which you're just not contributing as much to this, to the system. Like there's all these basic, you know, if they could drill and trickle down economics, the idea that Democrats haven't even tried to drill in the idea that Rich people aren't paying their fair share. Rich people are freeloading on the system. Rich people are taking a bigger percentage of the pie over time. You know, CEOs made, you know, 30 times what workers made 50 years ago, and now they make 300 plus times what they made. Like, these are simple points and points that Bernie Sanders was very good at making. But again, it can't just be one guy in the context of an election cycle. If we had people, pundits on MSNBC, parroting those points, we'd live in a very different world. Unfortunately, Democrats don't have an interest 
and living in that very different world either because we have two corporate parties and that's the fundamental yes. problem here. It's not that they're yeah. stupid. It's that they don't want to do it. Yeah, um, exactly. But you're completely right, Cormac. It's, it's, it's midnight. I was going to say noon. It's midnight and your girl's got to wake up, up early and do some rising and I have to figure out what happened with that that um, crypto thing before tomorrow because I suspect I'm going to have to talk about it. Um, so I'm going to call it but it's been really great talking to you. I hope that nobody is like discouraged by even the more contentious conversations because I found them to be very valuable and I always enjoy talking to you and to have an opportunity to moot some arguments. I have a very high conflict personality type. So I genuinely did enjoy it and I appreciate all of you who are willing to go toe to toe with me. I'm going to play a little Pink Floyd. I just picked randomly off the internet. So you tell me if this is a, as a bop or not. But um, I'll see you on Thursday and keep the faith.